Welcome to Kurt Vonnegut's The Podcast, dedicated to the life and works and ongoing things of Kurt Vonnegut, because he's the greatest author of all time. My name is Alex Schmidt, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Michael Swaim. How do you do, Alex? How I'm, are you? I do great. Good. Great. Yeah. That's good to hear. <laughs> Especially now, both at this time in history and after yeah. reading this book. It's a sad one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I hope if people read along for this episode... It's dark. You already know. <laughs> it's yeah, rough. yeah. And also, this is our first episode after the show has come out because we did the first two sort of together is one big thing. Absolutely. And thank you all who have connected with us on social media and yeah. uh, written and so on for being so great and so excited. Yeah, if you don't know, there is a Kurt Vonnegut's Facebook page. What else we got? We're on it's uh, Facebook.com slash Kurt Vonnegut's, and then we are at Kurt Vonnegut's on Twitter and mm-hmm. on Instagram. Mm-hmm. And it's been really nice talking to all of you about the books that we've all read on episodes on. Also, this episode about Mother Night. It's really exciting. Yeah. And as as with every book, I think, there is so much more to discuss than we can fit into even a couple hours. Yeah. So, yeah, we would love to talk to you guys about, especially Sirens, I say. <laughs> but um, oh, yeah, yeah. everything, every time. We're, we're definitely very excited about interacting with people, and we hope... You'll read along and you'll throw your thoughts up on the Facebook page. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and review the show, I guess, if you like it on iTunes. I'm getting yeah, that out also, there. Also, and it's good for our metrics. It is. <laughs> it is. We need uh, we need the love of Apple and mm-hmm. uh, yeah, or Google Play or Stitcher or Sound. Yeah. I mean, SoundCloud. I don't think has reviews, but if it does, maybe do one. We're everywhere. The Empire <laughs> is on the move. On on the move. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, also a very happy ninety uh, fourth Kurt Vonnegut's birthday. To everybody. Oh, nice. His birthday is uh, November 11th, which he writes about pretty movingly in Breakfast of Champions is also Armistice Day slash Veterans Day. And uh, uh, there's a poignant scene in today's book, Mother Night, actually, about that. Yeah. It slipped my mind initially because it doesn't affect the main plot. But when I was reviewing last night, I was like, oh, there's an Armistice Day. Yeah. It's a, I feel it like because up. it was his birthday, Definitely. he learned a lot about <laughs> Armistice Day. Yeah. It's like if you were born on flag day you'd be reminding everyone hey it's flag day today don't right, forget right. yeah or if you're like born on valentine's day and work at a greeting card company because mm-hmm. like he's a veteran so it's just yeah, like all the things uh, yeah, are coming yeah, yeah. together you know? he has a credible claim to caring about armistice day i'm not yeah. saying that oh, for sure. but i'm sure your birthday overlaying on it is a nice little <laughs> incentive to include it in your books because that's at least two so i i didn't know that i'll look out for other november 11th references yeah he's so referential man that's one of the things I'm loving. Like, uh, I went back and watched all of Seinfeld in order a few years ago, which oh. I'd never done because I'd seen them all, but, you know, yeah, in awesome. syndication. And there are so many callbacks, like, across episodes that I never noticed. Really? Well, well like, Jerry says, I don't want to be a pirate. But he says many things after that in that exact tone of voice. <laughs> and they, like, bury it. And if you saw them out of order with the episodes far apart, you wouldn't necessarily notice. And I'm just, with Vonnegut, I'm also like, man, he has, like, a Tarantino-level interwoven universe. And I didn't appreciate that at first. And even with this book, going into it, because I had read Mother Night before, and going yeah. into it, I thought, there aren't really any recurring characters, are there? There aren't really any cameos or repeats or this sort Kurt of a little standalone. <laughs> and... Actually, let's get into a segment right now. Okay, uh, yeah. Let's, let's do it. This segment is called Kurt Cameo. Kurt Meows. Kurt Meows. 
Yeah, because uh, <laughs> I think we really enjoy it. pretty self-explanatory. Yeah. It's Kirk this cameos. It's when he hitchcocks himself into the book. Exactly. <laughs> and, uh, and we, I think, had a great time in both these past episodes, like summarizing the plot of the book. And if you summarize this book's plot, it opens with Kurt Vonnegut being in the book. One thing with the publication history of this book is there were a few different versions over time. There was the first version, which came out in 1961, which is why we're doing it at this time, because if you haven't listened to the show before, we're doing all those books chronologically. Isn't that fun? So the first version, the very first thing you read is an editor's note by Kurt Vonnegut saying that he is the editor of the memoirs of Howard W. Campbell Jr. Like he's the guy who went through and edited this quote-unquote real person's story so it's a meta editor's name. and yeah and it's a whole he does the old trick where it's like the names haven't been changed everything's exactly accurate this is a true story yeah it reminded me of fargo how uh they credit prince as one of the murder victims and like at the beginning of fargo it says it's i think it's the first movie that did this at the beginning of fargo it says the following is based on a true story but the names have been changed to protect the innocent total bullshit Oh, is that? Yeah, it's not true at all. Complete fabrication. They thought it would be fun and make you more invested if they just lied to you and said it was true. And uh, that's a great trick. (laughs) (laughs) And this is like that. Because, yeah, it's Kurt saying, trust me, this shit is real. Yeah. But you know it ain't. <laughs> well, and it was and apparently it was even when it first came out a little bit marketed. Like the first edition cover says like this is the story of a spy and the, you know, and oh, it's Oh, like the it, untold story of a real Nazi spy. Yeah. Yeah. When actually it's all made up. It's all another thing. So are you saying that the introduction that comes before the editor's note, was that not in the first publication? That wasn't in the first publication, yeah. Cuz what was so interesting to me is there's an introduction with no fourth wall, like just straight up talking to you as right. Kurt Vonnegut himself before he puts on his editor hat and is like, I'm still Kurt Vonnegut. Now I'm framing the story you're about to read. Yeah. There's a lot of preamble, but um, it, the, yeah. I would say the most famous and memorable line of the book is in the introduction. Yes. Which a lot of readers would skip. And which also, I guess it sounds like wasn't even included originally, yeah. which is uh, just to get it, the elephant in the room out there. It's uh we become what we pretend to be, so we must be careful what we pretend to be. Yes. Which I was like taught in English class in high school as an important literary quote. And it's just amazing to me that it's not in the story. Yeah. And it is the takeaway. It's the reason this, yeah. the, like, there's a lot of other good things about this book, but that's the super resonant thing. And at least my edition of it is what's the second version that came out, which was. In 1966, they published a hardcover of this. Originally, it was a paperback through Gold Medal Books, which was uh, in 1961. Like when the initial release is paperback, that's when you know, like Kurt still is not A-list, at least in the publisher's minds, right? Because you'd premiere in hardback usually. And yeah, and that was how they did Sirens as well. Yeah. Like it was just, they put them out as paperbacks, mm-hmm. and, and that was where the industry was at, but also how they handled his stuff. And so 1961, they do a paperback, just has the editor's note and then into the book. The second version is a hardcover by, published by Harper and Row in 1966, and that has the Kurt being truly himself introduction that's in, in my version of it and probably in everybody else's version of it where he lays out this amazing moral and does this amazing setup for the whole book. But if you look at it, it's signed Iowa City 1966 because Mm -hmm. he was teaching at the Iowa Writers Workshop, University of Iowa, which is an amazing school, if you don't know about it, for like graduate 
writing courses essentially. Yeah. And so he was teaching there and <laughs> added that on after the fact, and it really changes your entire experience of the book. Totally. It's amazing. It's, I likened it to my girlfriend, Jen, to like Donnie Darko was always one of my favorite movies just for tonal reasons and everything. And But I was able to roll with the fact that like the plot didn't coalesce for me. It was like Final Fantasy VII. Like I love it, <laughs> but I grant that I didn't know literally what was happening by the end in some cases. Then if you go online and read... The filmmaker, I think his name's Richard Garfield, but I'm like blanking right now. That could uh, be from nowhere and nothing. He also did Southland Tales. But anyway, his good shit is Donnie Darko. And <laughs> you can go online and read everything. Richard, Richard Kelly. Richard Kelly, thank yeah. you. Everything that they intended and like additional information about like that crazy old lady and her book. And the point is, it makes it all make sense. Like oh. on a plot level, it <laughs> completely at- makes absolute sense. And the movie would have been even more enjoyable, it's a rare case, if I could have been explained that ahead of time. And I do think, just like Sirens, just like Winston laid everything out, Kurt is the master of and loves telling you everything up front without detracting from the journey. So, like, he wants you to understand the moral of the story, so he says, here it is. It's the first sentence. I mean, it's before (laughs) the first sentence. And then the story will just, like, deepen that lesson. Yeah, absolutely. And he has a super strong interest in doing that, like you say, because there is this first version, no no extra intro, second version with an extra intro. Then there was a third version published in 1984 by an underground publisher in Poland. Nice. Like an Eastern yeah. Bloc underground, <laughs> we're going to get around the Soviet Union Almost publisher. Almost like Stepan, the guy who will come up later. Who yeah. steals his trunk of the, yeah, well, we'll get to the synopsis, yeah. And Vonnegut wrote a preface to the Polish edition, specifically for readers in Poland, which I haven't been able to get my hands on, but a source says that it mostly expands on his experiences as a POW, because in the intro that he puts in the second version of Mother Night, he very briefly and casually mentions, like, yeah, I was in the war and I was a POW, and yes. Anyway, let's yeah. move on with. And so in that Polish version, he really expands on it and builds it out. Gotcha. Yeah. So the thing itself, the text you're reading, is the memoirs of Howard Campbell Jr., similar to Vonnegut Jr.? I don't know I if think that's so, why. Actually, yeah. Who is your main character and sort of your moral conundrum. But the point at which the book starts, the book you're reading are the memoirs he's writing in jail while he's on death row for crimes against humanity because of his Nazism. Yeah. So he also routinely tells you the major twists... It's almost like Vonnegut has like a fetish for this, I'm realizing. Like in the way that in Sirens, he literally, Winston Niles Rumford tells the future and that it happens. I loved how no filmmaker in the world, or almost no, would, spoiler alert, save the fact that Rezzy dies yeah. as a reveal or as something to be exciting in the moment. But instead, he like four chapters earlier, because it's in the present tense, says... Like, four chapters from now, Rezzy's going to die. We'll get there. (laughs) And then instead of it being surprising, it's more of a sense of dread. And it's just a really interesting effect that he loves to do. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, especially in this, because it's so full of doom a lot of the time. Like, just things are not going to work out for him repeatedly. Well, for him and for, I mean, it's a World War II, war is hell sort of story. So, yeah, almost everyone is not only killed, but like their soul is betrayed in a very real way. (laughs) Even like George Kraft, ultimately. Oh, it's good. Should we get into the synopsis? Let's do it. From here, we go straight into another segment called Plot Time. 
tick, tick, tick. All of the life is a stage and the people merely play. Ding, 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 ding. Wake up, it's time for school. Okay, plot time. That's enough. <laughs> hey, oh, on the drive over here, I wrote a little poem that synopsizes the plot of Mother Night. Do you want to hear it? Wait, but like... It's real short. No, no, unpack that. So you were like driving. <laughs> you were like writing while you were driving. I was stuck on the other side of the train tracks, which is why I was oh, a few yeah, minutes yeah. late to this recording session. <laughs> <laughs> and I constantly, instinctively do spoonerisms. Oh, okay. Like Sale of Two Titties instead of Tale of Two Cities. But I'll do it with anything. Like When I learned your name was Alex Schmidt, I instinctively went, Schmalix... I, no, it's nothing. Like, yeah. you know, like I always see if it works. With I'm spoonerproof, baby. Exactly. <laughs> Your parents thought it through. <laughs> so I just thought Mother Night, another might, another might. And then I ended up writing a poem. I don't know how it happens. Do you want to hear it? It's not long. Yeah, let's do it. All right. Mother Night, another might want the life you try to underwrite. So be careful for if you've a knack for acting, you just might blunder undercover right to the top of the third Nazi Reich. That's it. <laughs> Whoa, that's great. That's how long it took the train to go by. Yeah, but yeah, you you, you use uh, you use that time well. I was excited to realize how quickly this one encapsulates because sirens. Our synopsis really sprawled, I think. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. And, and we got it a lot of meaning with that, I think. But yeah, this one the the plot is relatively simple. Yeah, uh, and especially because it's set in the real world, and like this is the first novel i think where kurt can truly be like hey stop calling me a science fiction writer yeah because there aren't science fiction elements right it's history and and betrayal and things like that right so to set the scene world war ii <laughs> you're yeah. aware of everything yeah it was the a major Nazis. event yeah exactly <laughs> that's all happening enter howard w campbell jr and he's an american he's born in schenectady new york to mm. and has a father who works for general electric all very curt ping ping <laughs> uh, and in the process of his childhood his family moves to germany he grows up in germany and he chooses to stay there after he could go back to america he becomes a german language playwright he marries a german actress and sort of builds a life helga Helga yeah. Noth. And uh, he and Helga build a life in Germany, and they're building a life in Germany as the Nazis are coming to power. But I think it's important that he writes sappy romance plays yes. like about very abstract ideals. He loves good versus evil and love triumphing, but in a completely apolitical way. You know, like he's... I'm trying to think of a modern filmmaker, but I can't think of a good... But you know what I mean. He yeah. writes light romantic comedies with a lot of heart, and he means it. But he doesn't want to come down on either side. Like, he doesn't want yeah. to be involved in the war. How about, like, <laughs> slightly funny Nicholas Sparks, almost? Sure. Like, just yeah. like, oh, uh, it was a, this was a nice romance in a medieval time, and what a thing. I think they imply he's a little better of a writer than I think Nicholas Sparks is. But, yeah, sure, yeah. But yeah, the tone is apt. Yeah. But the whole point being that when he's approached by this random American dude in a yeah. park one day... He's a successful playwright with no political aspirations who, it's important to point out, thinks the Nazis are wrong, thinks racism is disgusting and immoral, yeah. thinks all the progressive things that we think now, but nevertheless doesn't feel that it's so dire that it's his duty to like fight it. He would rather, like I think a lot of people would, not be involved in the war and not get killed and just wait for the war to end like as a civilian. Yeah, the institutions will protect us. We'll all work this out. It'll be and fine. I'll keep writing. I'm just a writer. Right. Yeah. And we also all of these biographical things in his life. We're finding out about them 
after they happen, because this is the way the book's framed and the way the activity is happening is Howard is an older man who's in a jail in Israel and he's going to be tried for his crimes as, as a, a member of the Third Reich <laughs> and as their like chief propagandist other than Goebbels, essentially. Right. And you know it's a big deal because the people in the cells around him are like Adolf Eichmann. Yeah. And Goebbels and Himmler and Hess and shit. Like the worst yeah. Nazis. And he talks to Eichmann in yeah. uh, a few parts of the book and things like that. Which is how you know it's not real because like if you've had a schmear of World War II history, you know all those names. And you're like, I never heard of this Campbell guy. Right. Well, that's because he's, he's forced gumped his way in here as, <laughs> in an evil way. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. The book before it does kind of a deep dive into Campbell's early life and how he got in the situation. We meet his four different guards, finally it structures it with the four different guard shifts of people watching Campbell in jail are each people from sort of different walks of life of people who were impacted by the Nazis. Like the first guard is just a young guy born in the state of Israel and just mostly familiar with like current life and what's going on. Then there's a very, very old man who was in a concentration camp. Then there was a man who joined the Hungarian SS rather than dying. Uh, and then there's a guard who was a Polish Jew who played dead even as Nazis were like taking his gold fillings and things like that. Yeah. And so all Oof. these different people are sort of a way to get into how the world feels about Campbell now. And yes. What did. And I think it primes you for, which is something I didn't get the first few times I've read this book, the book being each chapter being a vignette that presents like a nuance or a point of view on the central moral question. And I want to like throw that out there so people can have it in mind as we proceed, because What's going to happen very soon, and what you already know because he describes it explicitly at the start of the book, is that he inside is not a Nazi, as yeah. we said. He gets approached by American agents yeah. who asks him to be a spy by ingratiating himself further into the Nazi party. They're like, they already like you. You're a celebrity playwright. But start writing more plays that are like, rah, rah, go Nazis, we hate Jews, etc. And get in good with the Nazis and become a Nazi, become a member of the party, work your way up, and then we'll have some use for you. We'll get to the synopsis. He, he does have some use to the Allies, but he yeah. remains a Nazi throughout the war and helps the Nazis very much because he's a brilliant writer who devotes all of his effort to writing propaganda, yeah. inspiring hatred. So the question of the book is, is he a good guy or a bad guy, I think is sort of the right. most basic way to put it. Do you forgive him because of what was inside his heart? even though it was totally secret all the time and no one in the world ever knew that he was good inside. Right. Does it matter? Was he really good or was, you know, or was he really Nazi? So with that in mind, I think these three guards each provide such an amazing, like different takes, super different takes on that topic. So like the first, I don't remember the order, but one of the guards is really guilty because they volunteered while they were in the concentration camp for the Sunderkommando. Yeah, yeah. Which is yeah. sort of the, it's the job of carrying the corpses, right? Yeah. To be incinerated. And the reason he volunteered for it is he said every day they would repeat over the loudspeakers that they need new ones or calling them to the guardhouse. And it, with so much repetition, it eventually just sounded like a good job. Yeah. And Campbell's like, I get that. And he's like, I don't. I'll never forgive myself. I don't understand why that was. Right. And all I could think of <laughs> at the risk of alienating sponsors was like the Nike swoosh or the McDonald's arches. I think there's a point there. <laughs> 
just about how the sheer power of iconography to brainwash, because that's what was happening to the German people. Just this powerful example of, yeah, you can be brainwashed to do fucked up shit that doesn't make sense to you in retrospect, if it's repeated enough, if you're in that situation. Well, yeah, I think, yeah, I think on some level you just need to decide it's, or you, you have an impulse to be like, well, this is just normal then. This is just how things must work because otherwise everything's terrible and I have to like march in the streets. So, all right, fine. You know, but, and especially if you're a prisoner in that sort of horrible situation. Yeah. Breaks you, I think. Yeah. Oh, and then there's the guard that hates Jews. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. Though he himself is Jewish. Right. Because he reads the first few pages of Campbell's thing and realizes that he's not going to be just hating on Jews. And he gets upset because he says, I hate the Jews for having meekly gone to death. Like they should have fought much more. Yeah. And you should be telling them that. We don't need to get into each one, but each guard, almost in an Aesop's Fables way, brings in a really powerful moral sentiment yeah. all their own. And they're just like, in and out, that's their thing. <laughs> <laughs> and it's all punchy, too. Like like you were saying about the chapters, just bring them in, take them out the right amount. of. Like If you've been following the show and you've read Player Piano and Sirens of Titan with us, going from Player Piano to Sirens of Titan, it's like, wow, he really sharpened everything. Like, he just goes, 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 goes. And he keeps that up in this book. And yeah. it's, because it's two, about 200 pages, depending on your edition. And there's 47 chapters. So it's really broken <laughs> up. And it's really like, here's the thing we're done. Here's the thing we're done. Here's and this is where you really done. start to see those chapters we were talking about that are like, I think it's like chapter 36 or something is like a page long. Yeah. And it's just, well, that was it. Great. Yeah, and that's what gives them these little, like, fable feelings, even though he is great at overall structure, because the plot chugs along quite nicely. It does. So, speaking of which, (laughs) (laughs) he's approached by this dude, as we said, and the guy basically says, I've seen your plays, and I can tell you're a good guy at heart, so I know you're going to do this for me, and what I want you to do is people will slip you information, and once you're a propaganda minister, you'll read all your hateful diatribes against the Jews and the gypsies and everyone, But in there, you'll insert, like, coughs or hiccups, and that'll be the code. You won't know what you're saying or what information you're transmitting. Yeah. Just trust us. It's useful to us. (laughs) Yeah, someone else will give you the pauses and hiccups to do. You'll do them, and that'll help. Just trust it'll help. That's how it works. And the agent's name is Frank Wertanen, and uh, he basically approaches him in a park and says, please do this. And Howard's like, I don't know. I'm going to go back to my wife. I'm going to have a nice meal. We're going to have sex. I'm going to keep writing plays. Just things are going to be great. And Frank says, no, no, you are going to do this. You're going to decide later, but you are going to do this and it's going to happen. And then I think we pretty much cut to he's doing it, right? Yeah. Well, what's crazy is I think we maybe we should just go chronologically as far as his life is concerned because yeah, he does so. wreak havoc with time. Like, so for example, yeah. now we would technically go to chapter six where he describes the 15 years he lived in New York after the war ended, but before he was captured. Yeah. <laughs> so I think we should just say the chapters don't necessarily appear in this order, yeah. but in his yeah, life, yeah. He becomes a spy, and what's interesting to me is he is a loyal spy, meaning he doesn't tell anyone, including his wife. And they don't have kids. Helga, his wife, is described as, like, his soul, the love of his life. You believe they could be a Dupross, possibly, if you're promoted Cat's Cradle. But I guess they don't die 24 hours apart. But he basically says the only way he survives the war is building his whole life around his love for Helga. She's yeah. his reason for living, for getting through all the horror, etc. Yet he doesn't tell her 
that he doesn't mean all this Nazi shit. So as he slowly becomes a Nazi, she, at first out of support and then genuinely, also becomes a raging Nazi. Right. (laughs) Which must be so upsetting and like disturbing and disappointing. Yeah. From his point of view. And he doesn't dwell on it too much, but I couldn't help but think about what that would be like in your relationship. Like seeing someone turn into something that you're like, you're a monster. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, because he calls specifically the way he gets through it, they became a nation of two. They like the borders of it were the bed they sleep in, and that's just it's the two of us, that's it. Ein Reich. (laughs) Exactly. And I was very hung up on that too like he really in the book just kind of moves past how that felt how fucked up that would be yeah (laughs) and it would be really and like even his decision to not tell her any of it like he just kind of says well it would have been very hard on her right it would have hurt our relationship so tell her speaking of hard on her (laughs) the other thing he does is and i think this is why is he focuses like their love all the way down to just their sexual relationship. Yeah. So he really puts her on a pedestal as like this beautiful goddess and his only reason for living. And the point is that to get through this horrible time, and you'll see it in many characters, including Rezi very powerfully later, yeah. you find something to live for. And I and so his becomes Helga. And when she becomes like disgusting on a personal level, I think that could be why he becomes so intently almost obsessive about their sexual relationship. Yeah. He writes a book called Memoirs of a Monogamous Casanova, yeah. where he like almost scientifically, but somewhat poetically, but very rigorously just <laughs> describes every time they have sex. Like it's just a sex diary of every time they have sex and what it was like, yeah. what happened, what he thought. There's no like plot or anything. It's just like, yeah. this is what we did. <laughs> so he do, he's doing that at night. He's giving these horrible speeches by day that are just classic. You know what Nazis think. <laughs> And he pitches himself as the last free American. And That's his catchphrase. Yeah, yeah, and pitches himself as essentially, I'm the one American who gets it, and everybody else yeah. is in the sway of the Jews back in America. Right. And I'm a, the yeah. one who understands these <laughs> principles that we're all fighting for so hard. They ask him if he misses America, and he's like, well, I could never enjoy it with the Jews running everything. Yeah, yeah. And he also <laughs> but leads, of course. It's weirdly funny to me that he leads with like, oh, sure, I miss the hills and the rivers. And so, all right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what? <laughs> so he, so the, the war sort of all happens with him just doing this propaganda work, and the only people who know what he's doing are Frank Rattanen and a general, and also Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who listens to him religiously because it's very, very funny to him. Just every every Campbell chat, like, Roosevelt knows it's fake and finds it funny because it's so over the top and so crazy. And then before the war wraps up, I think there is one more important interlude because it's Rezzy's introduction. So the last thing that happens before the war sort of wraps up Mm -hmm. is he goes to see... His father-in-law, so his father-in-law, his yeah. father-in-law, who's a, the sheriff of the town. Yeah, so the, he's chief, the of chief of police. Yeah. and Howard's <laughs> there because Howard is the ranking officer of the Free American Corps, which is a Nazi military unit of like American defectors. American Nazis, which, which only is got their like idea. Three guys and ever, has yeah, yeah no people in it aside from, but he has like a funny uniform and knife and everything. Yeah, and he's like, oh, here I am. So basically, he goes to visit them. They're unpacking because Germany at this point is obviously going to lose the war. They're trying to save all their shit. Yeah. You get this great interlude where the father-in-law basically like abusively manhandles one of his servants because she's not carrying a vase properly and he's scared it's going to break. Yeah. And he says, see, this is how you handle precious things and like shows her how to hold the vase. Of course, our hero 
inside his own head is like, yet he can't recognize how he's mishandling a human life, which is the most important thing. Yeah. Then the guy comes up and says, you know, I always thought you were a spy. Now I don't even care that now that the war is over. You know why? Because I realized even if you are a spy, no matter what information you fed to the allies, there's no way it could have served the enemy as well as you served us. Because I've realized that all the catchphrases, like, and all the things I believe are from your radio show. So it's this very sad moment for Howard where obviously a Nazi is telling him, I kind of suspect you're a spy, but I want you to know you're a Nazi. Like, we accept you. Yeah. You are great to us. And it's really disturbing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then when Howard's there, he's like, I guess, is there anything I can do for you? And he says, I need you to shoot Rezzy's dog. And yeah. Rezzy is Helga's sister, the police chief's other daughter. She's younger. And uh, Howard's like, all right, I guess I'll go do that. And he goes into the house where Rezzy and the dog are. And Rezzy says, oh, you're here for, to shoot the dog, aren't you? And he's like, I mean, I guess, yes. And then she's, uh, among other things, Rezzy tells Howard that she's always loved him. And he's like, okay, yeah. that's very nice. And she was like, no, no, like I would fantasize about being your Helga. Like I wanted to be the person that you wrote plays for and were completely enamored with. It's more and- the idea of, you get the impression that she's like, yeah, jealously obsessed with what she perceives their relationship to be. Yeah. Because obviously she doesn't know him. She's like 11 or something. Yeah, she's much younger, yeah. But yeah, so she's in love with him in this like fangirl way almost. Yeah, basically. (laughs) But she's also a complete nihilist. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Because at this point in the war and the things she's seen, she's also like your classic child that has no soul. So he's like well, I don't want to shoot your dog. And she's like, I don't care. I don't even like this dog. You know, <laughs> you'll be dead soon. And he goes like, well, maybe not. I could live. And she goes, no, you'll be dead. Everyone who's living now will soon be dead. I'll soon be dead. And she's like, take the dog now. <laughs> and also, I've always loved you. Yeah. <laughs> right. It's like, oh, great interaction. Thanks. Yeah. And Howard ends up getting, he has to go to the Russian front, which is where they figured we'll send the free American Corps. He shoots to the fight. dog. Don't worry. And yeah. He oh, gets yeah. the job. The dog done. dies. Big <laughs> time. And then he, I believe, ends up getting captured on that front and then immediately released because people behind the scenes are like, great, you were a spy, so obviously released. But also, we can't tell anyone what you did because we might need this strategy that worked so well to help beat the nazis in our next war whatever that is well they've and they've always said the deal was that we'll disavow you you're not going to come home to a hero's welcome he was told that originally but the one thing they promised him is like you won't be executed like we'll keep you legally safe we know you're an american spy and we'll protect you one thing i don't want to skip by real quick just because it'll come back later is to get to the front he borrows his best friend heinz's motorcycle and then just never returns it yeah And Heinz is this guy who, again, gives you this little vignette that you can just meditate on and is amazing. (laughs) His point of view, his little story, is that he loves smoking cigarettes and he's bitterly sad because he realized how much in his life he sacrificed for cigarettes because as things became more and more expensive and cigarettes were a luxury, he sold all kinds of other things and eventually lost his wife because he refused, because all their money was going to just cigarettes and he would rather keep smoking than keep his wife, so she left him. And then when it came down to selling his motorcycle, he immediately stopped smoking cold turkey. Yeah. And for whatever reason, he was able to do that And Howard's like, you can't be so hard on yourself, you know? You quit smoking, that's good. You don't necessarily need to tie it to your wife. And he's like, yes, I do. I wouldn't quit smoking for my wife, and I would for this motorcycle. 
We in yeah. life, we cling to the wrong things and we start clinging too late. And that's its own like, boom. Yeah. And then he goes, can I borrow your motorcycle? And given the situation, he's got, Heinz has got to know it's unlikely he'll see it again. And he goes, yeah, I don't care. Because yeah. that's how fucking everyone is depressed <laughs> by World War II. And just the punchline way at the end of the book in a tiny aside is Howard W. Campbell in modern day in prison finds out that Heinz hates his guts and is coming back like the soup Nazi to testify against him because he was always an Israeli spy the whole time. So they were both spies on the same side, but his best friend doesn't believe him when he says he's a spy. He's like, no, I think you were a Nazi. I'm going to testify against you, motherfucker. (laughs) So that's Heinz, but he comes and goes and it's nothing. So the war wraps up. I do think it's it's important to say he's captured by Bernard B. O'Hare. Yeah. Oh, right, right. Yeah. It's uh, Bernard B. O'Hare captures him. And this seems like as good a time as any to do another segment within, within this, nested in this, called Recurring Characters Update. We're going back. We gotta go back. I'm back. I'm back, baby. Recurring. We're shoving trash into the engine that powers this. Uh, I feel like show. our yeah. I feel like our segment intro theme process is shoving trash into something. <laughs> it's for my sure. favorite way to do it <laughs> because uh, this book is relatively light on recurring character. There is the the aspect of Howard's dad being at GE, that sort of player piano thing, and also Howard W. Campbell will recur in Slaughterhouse Five briefly as sort of himself. I did not know that. Yeah, that's yeah. great. <laughs> but and then the big one probably is that Bernard B. O'Hare is an army lieutenant who captures Howard W. Campbell when he's on the field. Anyway, and this name will change slightly in Slaughterhouse Five to Bernard V. O'Hare. And it will become partly that because there's an actual person named Bernard V. O'Hare, who was Kurt's real-life squad buddy in the war, essentially. They were fighting together. See, I like to think it's like Vic and Vincent Vega. Yeah. <laughs> or <laughs> like their brothers there, or, or something. is there clear evidence that it's the same character? He just wanted to change the initial. I think they're basically opposite characters. Bernard there B. There you o- go, brothers. They're so like the, estranged brothers. Yeah. Yeah, because Bernard <laughs> B. O'Hare in this book is going to be a guy who basically hounds Howard out of like just this kind of misplaced zeal for like, somehow I can destroy all the evil in the world by getting this guy. Yeah, like, the, his climactic chapter is called St. George versus the Dragon. Yeah. And I think it really drives home. His arc is like trying to show that it's good to be good, but a simple, basic, like, let's just kill evil people view of good is bad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or is like being basic is not helpful. Yeah, it's yeah. basically Bernard's whole plot. <laughs> yeah, and we'll get to his punchline, right. but it's good. Because it's very different from Bernard V. O'Hare, who is basically his real self in Slaughterhouse-Five, was from Pennsylvania, was an Irish Catholic, was a drinker, and was also... He and Kurt Vonnegut got along really well because they had a very similar sort of outlook on life. Like, they were both very sardonic and very capable of being not a extreme patriot and lover of literally killing evil they could think Um, outside the box yeah in it's a book called well it's by charles shields and it's called and so it goes kurt vonnegut a life they talk about bernard v o'hare and say that coming back from world war ii bernard v o'hare told kurt that he had lost his religious faith in the war like he just didn't believe anymore and they would keep and stay close and keep in touch mostly by phone for the rest of their lives but they were 
very, very on the same wavelength. And so I think he gives Bernard B. O'Hare in Mother Night, he gives that kind of name to him as sort of a tribute to his friend, mm-hmm. but it's the opposite kind of guy. Like, it's not right. a guy who's like Because Bernard militant. B. is not admirable. Yeah. And then he's like, maybe I shouldn't have named that guy after my friend, my good friend. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Are there other recurring characters? That's pretty much it, yeah. as far as I can tell. It's dig light out. on him. It is yeah. it's a very somber, serious novel, and I think he probably didn't want to put too much like yeah. You know, you throw too many Easter eggs into something and it's like, are you trying to make this Nazi thing fun? It's like <laughs> it's just weird. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that makes sense, actually. Because even in the process of writing it, there were a few different working titles for Mother Night. One of them was Nation of Two. Utopia of... 15. <laughs> <laughs> just keep going Player with the Peter Ocean's Roberts. Eleven thing. It's yeah. just all... Also, at one point, he called it Evil Anyone, which is a very <laughs> funny title <laughs> for this. That's a uh, great title for anything. Or like a, a movie you'd see with Tim Rice on Comedy Central. Tim Curry. I always call him Tim Rice because <laughs> of Curry Rice. rice. <laughs> <laughs> like clue could have been called that <laughs> yeah, yeah they really could have yeah it's like very like cartoon villain yeah. like despicable me could have been called evil oh, anyone, yeah you know my like, favorite <laughs> is uh there will be blood the book it's based on is just called oil exclamation <laughs> point right, right i'm like that's also good oil. i would have seen a movie just called oil oil <laughs> Before all those working titles, Kurt and his letters and and things like that would just call it the Nazi book. Like it was just (laughs) from the outset, his goal was like, okay, maybe I I should do something with all these experiences and all these feelings I have around it. So I think feel good. (laughs) But if we're disengaging back to the synopsis. Yeah. Yeah. War wraps up. He's captured by Bernard B. O'Hare, who I think is it's clear assumes he's hanged or killed like all the nazis are just generally being slaughtered at this time yeah but secretly he's re uh gathered up by the powers that be and frank wertanen meets with him in some abandoned area and is like okay you survived the war it's a great scene actually frank wertanen is john goodman in the movie which is just perfect casting yes yeah and uh so it's a scene where they're in like a bombed out farmhouse and there's some really poignant lines uh what'd you think about that war you made it through alive yeah a lot of people didn't blah 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 what do you want to do now and basically uh howard doesn't give a shit because he's depressed he's like send me anywhere i don't care they could hang me i don't care you guys can't hang me if you want and he's like no 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 how about new york (laughs) you could start a new life there it's easy to blend in no one will care about you yeah do whatever you want so they send him to new york he spends 15 years living in what's described as just like a ratty attic that costs less than $4 a day in rent. <laughs> yeah, in uh, Greenwich Village. In Greenwich Village, like yeah. There. yeah. Which, my God, I was just looking at apartments all around <laughs> New York. Oh, really? I would pay... I'd pay $40 a day for a studio <laughs> apartment in one bedroom in uh, oh, Greenwich yeah. Village. Are you kidding me? He should have hung on to that property. But <laughs> yeah, so you take it from there because I'm hazy, yeah, I, but he's living there. Well, and also, there, What's the I, next notable thing? There is uh, One thing I want to hit when he's meeting with Frank, when he's on the way back out, one thing that jumps out to me in it is... Howard basically asked Frank, like, and people know I who I was, right? Like in the war. Like that I'm a and, good guy. Yeah, yeah. And Frank is like, Yeah, they know what you were in both ways, essentially. And and Oh, I thought and that like, was in his third meeting he says that. The point is kind of chew we, him out. We Maybe can unpack the point whenever, yeah. it doesn't matter, but please proceed. But there is there's one point in the book where 
Frank kind of chews out Howard for being a Nazi. Yeah. And Howard's like, you recruited me to be a spy. In the-. And Frank yeah. is like, well, look, what would you have done if the Nazis started winning this war? Would you have just gone to Hitler and been like, I know you just won the war, but I was a spy the whole time. That right. Would you have really like, fought for ideals that yeah. I fight for? Would you have died like all the people I watch die yeah. for this cause? And if the Nazis or, had won, yeah. you would have just been a happy, successful person in that world. Right. And he feels like, so in that sense, you're just like a slimy opportunist, really. Yeah. Which I think is a really <laughs> phenomenal part of the book. I think it's, it's a really, it's like a thing I hadn't even crossed my mind as I was reading about his mission and his goals. It's true, but you really do sympathize with Howard, where who's like, yeah. you're the one guy who's supposed to tell me that it was worth it and I'm a good guy. And he's like, don't touch me, Nazi. <laughs> right. And he's like, I'm not a real Nazi. And he's like, I know, but you said so much gross shit. I still like, I don't like you. It, yeah. it was like the end of Fallout 2 when you saved your village and you go back and they're like, we're scared of you now. <laughs> because you're a badass warrior from the outside, please be exiled now. Yeah. I had yeah. that same like feeling of injustice. And I think to Howard's credit, like he meditates on it, he on that question, and he's like, I know that I really, really think Nazis and he states this many times, Nazis are crazy and right. wrong. And I see that fascism and racism are like plagues upon the earth. So I like to think I would have done something. Maybe I wouldn't have like bravely died, but I would have escaped the country. I would have started an underground newspaper. I would have done something, or maybe I would have just disappeared. And and Frank Rutan is like, I don't think so. I think you would have just been a (laughs) scumbag. And it's the point that like, you can't prove to people that you're a good guy if they don't believe you. Yeah. And it's just... And yeah. if you don't have, like, receipts, so to speak. It's a bitter if you don't moment. Have, like, look yeah. what I did. Yeah. No, but that's what's crazy is Frank Rutana knows more than Howard even knows. He knows the good things he did. Yeah. Howard doesn't even know explicitly what he did. And that's probably the most... Well, Howard says it is the most upsetting moment for him personally in the book. Yeah. is one of the things Frank tells him, he says... Well, you know, my wife Helga died during the war, which we forgot to mention, but she dies during the war. <laughs> um, and She's doing like entertaining the troops on the Eastern Front and gets blown up. Right. Yeah. A- and Frank is like, oh, yeah, I want you to know I was sincerely sad to hear that. You know, I'm sad for whatever pain that caused you. A lot of people died in the war. It's a shame. You know, I only heard about that like a couple days before you found out. So it wasn't like you were kept <laughs> in the dark. And he goes like, what do you mean? She wasn't a spy or anything. Why were you keeping tabs on her? How'd you even know she was dead? And he said, oh, it came out in one of the routine reports that you broadcast. Like it was a piece of information that you yourself broadcast through a series of coughs and clicks. And we needed to know that because it put you a notch higher on our potential suicide index. And if you had killed yourself, I would have had to find a spy to replace you in that role. Right. And he's like, so... (laughs) You had someone hand me a piece of paper saying my wife is dead, and you had me say into a microphone to the people of Germany, my wife is dead, before I knew consciously my wife is dead. And in the book, he says, I'm totally paraphrasing, but like, I don't know why, but that's the worst thing of all of this. For me. Like, he's not saying it's worse than the concentration camps, but as far as the tragedies befalling Howard Campbell, he said, that's the most upsetting thing. And to this day, he doesn't know why. It's like, and I love that moment because I also can't exactly elucidate why, but in some like vague way, it's so violating and upsetting. Yeah. It's almost like they made him kill her, but they didn't. It's just a weird thing. Yeah. 
It's just like he was so used by so many people that it just became yeah. something he was a machine transmitting. Like and it talk wasn't about even... recurring Vonnegut themes and Sirens of Titan callback. Yeah. We'll get to it in Kurt Blurt, but there's a lot on the theme of being used. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Big time. So he's so in he's, New York. He's in New York, <laughs> and he mostly just kind of hides in his apartment most of the time. But he starts to get to know just the nearest people around after a little while who are his neighbors. One of them is a doctor named Epstein. Abraham uh, Epstein. Abraham Epstein. And he lives with his mother, and both of them survived uh, Auschwitz. And he, the young doctor, just like tries not to think about it ever, and it's all his mom can think about. Like, it's all he's into. Like, if you mention the Holocaust around him, he'll go, he'll fly into a rage. Because yeah. in his mind, just he's not, yeah, yeah, he's not at the never forget phase. He's the opposite. Yeah. He's like, that was so fucked up. Can we just do our lives now and never right. mention it again, please? Right. Uh, and his mom's the opposite. She's like, no, the legacy of the Jews is now marked by the Holocaust. We have to be vigilant. We have to find all these Nazi bastards that still exist out there in Brazil, in Argentina, hiding in our very attic and bring them to justice. Yeah. So when he, he like cuts his finger or something, he gets an infected thumb, I think. Yeah, he has a. He needs his hand to just get looked at, and he knows Abraham is a doctor, so he goes to him. He patches him up, and and also it, we should say that initially Howard lives under an assumed name, and then he realizes eh, kind of nobody's looking for me, so I'll it's, just start living yeah. under my own name. It's fifteen years after the war, so yeah. people don't hear the name Howard Campbell and go like, "The Howard Campbell arrest that man!" Like they don't care. Right. Right. And, uh, and Abraham's mother is the one kind of person who will. So she's like, oh, that's an interesting name. And he's like, oh, yeah, I don't know. I guess uh, I guess it's like that guy, I guess. I don't know, weird. And they just sort of leave each other with a, like, he tries to, he's pretending he doesn't speak German, but he's like, uh, Auf Wiedersehen, right? And she's like. She tries to trap him by suddenly speaking German and seeing if he responds. Yeah. But he's a good spy. Very so good. he pretends not to know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, they basically leave each other with uh, until we meet again rather than goodbye. Yeah, it's like the end of a good action sequence yeah. banter. Yeah, he's like, uh, <laughs> no, I don't know German. But Alf saying, that's goodbye, right? And she goes, no, it's not goodbye. It's until we meet again. <laughs> so you're like, oh, that old lady's going to get you. Yeah, it's, it's very the movie heat. It's like, yeah. oh, these guys are canny. And, uh, they're after. Yeah. and then Howard also meets another of his neighbors who is known as George Kraft, who's a fellow widower, he says. And uh, George is doing a lot of painting in his place because he's a good painter. Howard gets so bored that he needs a hobby, so he, sorry to interrupt, but oh, I just yeah, wanted yeah. to say what That's gets him there. Thing. He whittles a chess set. Yes. And then realizes that he must have, like, internally craved human companionship so badly <laughs> yeah. that he whittled something that he can't use without another person. So right. he's like, obviously, maybe I want a human connection. So he tries to make a friend yeah. to have someone to play chess with, basically. Yeah, yeah. And they, and they end up hitting it off because they're both lonely. But also, Howard doesn't know that George Kraft is secretly Iona Potapov, who is a Soviet spy... And also like a chess master too, so he's and like, a great yeah, painter. I'll, I'll play Very chess. Very interesting with you. dude. Yeah, he's a genius basically. And um, it's great because you don't know he's a spy for a long time, but in retrospect, it's your classic Magneto Professor X. Like your two spies yeah. are playing chess, and even though they're both not capable, like they're not superheroes, they're not super spies. It's very mundane. Yeah, they're not treated like it's not a game of cat and mouse. I still thought it was funny that he couldn't resist having the two spies play chess regularly. You know, right? right. Even though in reality in reality of the book like their wits don't really tangle that 
no, aggressively yeah. because Kraft, like him, is like a broken down post-war spy. And it's implied that he's mainly living in America to not go home to his wife <laughs> in <laughs> yeah. Russia. Yeah. And he just likes it better in America. But basically, when this guy, Howard Campbell, comes and says hi, he genuinely befriends him. Right. As far as Moscow knows, he's like an inactive, shitty sleeper cell, Potapov is. But then they become such close friends that Campbell eventually says, I'm the Howard Campbell. I was an American. You know, he tells him the whole story that we've told you. And Kraft immediately sort of activates, right? This is such a juicy prize. He calls Moscow and starts making plans. So now, now Howard is in danger. And I think through that process, I forget exactly, but it becomes a situation where I think Potapov tips off the people running the White Christian Minuteman, mm-hmm. which is a periodical for white supremacists in America. It's a Nazi Like rag. Nazis, yeah. And they talk about the history of it and basically this crazy dentist yeah. <laughs> who believes that he can prove that black people and Jewish people are inferior based on their teeth, you know, like phrenology bullshit, started this paper And then eventually the Nazis actually reached out and started funding it and supplying his articles. So what's funny is a lot of the articles that they recycle and copy and paste as templates for their publication were written by Howard W. Campbell. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) So it's a paper that is sort of distorted versions of things he wrote that a current Nazi party still publishes. And he finds an issue in his mailbox. And not only that, the issue features an article about him saying that he's alive and exactly where he lives, including his home address. address, And not only that, (laughs) (laughs) but taped to it or like with it is a letter from Bernard B. O'Hare, the guy who captured him during the war, saying essentially, hey, motherfucker, I didn't know you were alive. I'm coming to find you right now. Right. Signed very sincerely, Bernard B. O'Hare, you evil motherfucker. Right. Like, my business is is not done yet. And he doesn't know, of course, how any of this happened. He doesn't know how they found out where he lives. He doesn't know how they found out why they published this article now. Right. We know, in retrospect, it's all because George Kraft basically wants to get him in such a pressured position that he'll be willing to leave the country because he wants to get him to Moscow. That's his only goal. Yeah, exactly. And so, and before Bernard can get there, Lionel Jones, who is this dentist, shows up along with his entourage, which is a Catholic priest named Father Keeley, and also Jones's right-hand man in the what is this? The Sons of the Iron Guard, White Sons of the Iron Guard of the Constitution, something like that. But they all arrive and they say, hey, we're here. We're so pleased to meet you. And also we have a present for you. Yes. But he goes through the dentist dudes, the main Nazi character dudes, in present tense at least, whole life story, as a very beautiful way to elucidate actually that he understands how crazy this guy is. Yeah. Like he tells his whole life story in a very ludicrous fashion and then ends the chapter by saying, you may wonder why we even care about this character's whole life story. It's because I need someone, the reader, to understand I laugh at this guy too. I see what a ludicrous douchebag he is and what a threat and what an evil cancer his beliefs on racism are and how fucking insane it is and how illogical it is to hate your fellow man. 
And yes, the Nazis were equally insane. They were driven to a point of illogical schizophrenic insanity where they believed things that were obviously not true, like men are superior to other men just because they're white. And yes, they ordered me to do horrible shit that I knew was insane. And God help me, I did as I was ordered every time. So it's just to hammer home. I guess how sorry he is, <laughs> and like, and he says a great line that's like, the more I think about it, the more I think people like this dude, the Reverend Doctor Lionel Jason David Jones, DDS, DD, <laughs> is his full title. <laughs> yeah, should really be in an insane asylum, and people like me should be hung. You know, right. people who do bad, knowing everything, are the people who truly deserve punishment. Yeah, because um, so, he couldn't yeah. help himself; he's just a nut. But yeah. like, I'm a sensible person who did the same things. Yeah, and I'm I'm the monster. Yeah. So the Nazis are him, a Catholic priest. Which, if you know your Nazi history, a Nazi should hate a Catholic priest, which is right. funny. The Black Führer of Harlem, Robert yeah. Sterling. Which, if you know your Nazi history, obviously Nazi should also not get along with yeah. him. And he's uh, he's their driver. I think Robert Wilson is Robert Wilson. Sterling, Robert the Black Wilson Fuhrer Sterling. of Harlem, a yeah. Japanese agent. Yeah, a, during a the black war. guy who's a Japanese agent who, yeah, with the Axis. <laughs> right. So he liked the Nazis because they hated America, but he doesn't like the part of Nazism that hates African Americans. And yeah. again, a recurring theme is he's able to delusionally separate those thoughts in his mind. And yeah. I think one of the amazing comparisons is you say, well, that's crazy. Like, that's where fascism comes from the ability to accept obviously untrue things. Because you're able to separate almost delusionally, you know, your bubble from reality. And then what's crazy is that's also the mechanism that allowed Campbell to do what he did. Yeah, exactly. He is also a schizophrenic, but for the cause of quote unquote good. And so it just becomes very hazy. And then the fourth member of their group is August Craptower. And that (laughs) has got to be an intentional name. The best name. Like he's going to die very soon. Thank God. Yeah. And... (laughs) They'll deliver a eulogy called His Truth Goes Marching On. So he's very emblematic of like Nazi beliefs. He's a true believer. He like cries when they think about Nazi ideals. (laughs) And he's literally a tower of crap. (laughs) So they they arrive at the top of the the walk-up stairs to Howard's apartment, but they have to like stop every couple steps because they know Crap Tower's heart can't take it if they go too fast. Again, just like a David Lynch style master of imagery. Such a cool way to describe four characters entering. He's looking down a spiral staircase and you only see their hands on the railing and he describes their hands in such detail that you get to know the characters before they appear. Yeah, Yeah, It's really cool. Like every ring on the reverend's hand has a symbol on it that is from some like neo-Nazi group. Right. So yeah. So yeah. So continue though. I'm getting too so they, caught up in the details. No, it's a great thing. So they uh, say, hey, we have a present for you at the bottom of the stairs. And Howard's like, I probably don't care. And they're like, just go. And he goes and looks. And other than having shock white hair now, it's Helga, he thinks. Like it's a woman at the His bottom of the wife. stairs who somehow is like very well preserved, he keeps saying, and like very youthful still. And other than her hair being kind of bleached out, it's suddenly Helga's back. Like, how has this happened? How is this even a thing? And they reunite very happily. They go back up the stairs and they're all talking and they're talking with the Nazis and so on. And then Crap Tower comes rushing up the stairs with all of Helga's bags because he's like, I don't know, it's just such an honor and I just wanted to carry all the he bags. He wanted to and serve like, them in some way. Yeah, and they're like, you're a fool to have done that. Because he's like 80 and he has a heart condition. Yeah, yeah and Crap Tower's like, no, I'm fine. I just want to serve them. And then Crap Tower dies. I mean, he's just dead. <laughs> he says, I'm like, I'm glad to give my life for someone who so supports Nazi ideals. And then he literally dies right then. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> then uh, Helga tells her history, 
which is very rough. And yeah. the story of being a POW and moved from one factory to another, and even to the point where like the war is over, but no one bothered to tell them because they're in a Siberian pencil factory and they like the free labor, so they just don't tell them the war ended. Yeah. So like up till present day, she's been like slave labor in I think like a pencil factory or something like that. Right. But because she's been like out of the way. She's well-preserved, I guess, or that's her story that she presents. Right. And uh, they have a little, essentially a montage where, as you imagine, they like have sex a lot, say I love you a lot, walk around to cute little shops. They're like reliving their lives and they're super happy. Yeah, and Howard takes you to a store and is like, I found the old bed we used to have that was right. in our home. Like, there, it's a new one is for sale in a store. We're going to get that. We're going to get a new place. It's going to be really wonderful. One of the chapters is called The Time Machine, which I think is very telling. Like, yeah, yeah. yeah. He has this brief period of recapturing everything he wanted and everything he was living for. Yeah, yeah. And then Helga essentially puts it to him and is like, so this is really everything you wanted? Like, that, like you, you still love me completely? Like, nothing could ruin this? Are you sure? And he's like, yes, absolutely nothing could ruin this. And she's like... Great. I'm actually Razzy. Uh, this whole time, <laughs> I just disguised myself as Helga. And when they were bringing me back to America after they freed me, I could choose who to be. They asked me my name, and I said I was Helga. And now I'm here, right. and I always loved you, and please love me, and let's do this. And it's actually pretty defensible, the way she tells it. Because yeah. it's like, I could have signed Rezzy, who has no living relatives and they would have sent me by default back to germany and i would have had no future and not known what the fuck i was doing or i could have said i was helga and they could have shipped me directly to you someone i've always been in love with from afar right and uh, and i could try my best to convince you to love me and and that seemed like a better deal and i'd be in america yeah and i'd be yeah it's just a better situation and it convinces him, which is kind of weird because now he knows that she's like 30 years younger than him um, <laughs> and the little sister of his dead wife. But yeah, he's like, I think the line is like, God help me, I accepted her as my Helga again, which yeah. is even creepier because he's not like, I started a new relationship with Rezzy. He's like, I thought of her as Helga. Yeah. Like she wanted me he's to. He's like, I wanted that and here we are. And yeah. they immediately go to buy, yeah, as you said, they're going to buy a big bed and they're looking in the shop window and he meditates on their reflections and how freaking old and war-torn he looks, and how her white hair now reminds him of, like, girls who bleach their hair and run away to Hollywood. Right. (laughs) (laughs) And he feels really weird about it. They go back to his apartment. She has another present for him that is important, which is an old trunk recovered from his home in Germany, or like a theater, like the attic of a theater or something. Regardless, it's all of his collected writings from his whole life. Yeah, and he says it feels like a past life because it's all just romantic plays and things like that that he used to do. And we actually get to read chapter 643 of the memoirs of a monogamous Casanova, which is just like smut. (laughs) It's just like describing a sexual encounter. Yeah, yeah. And basically it shows how their relationship between he and Rezzy sort of becomes deeper but also weird and strained because she like... Wants him to write again, and he's like, I'm old now, and all this shit happened to me, and I don't really want to. And she's like, but you wrote for Helga, don't I inspire you? (laughs) And so it starts to get weird, or to me, that starts to feel awkward. So like now, she was this woman coming to his life who's like, I'm only here to live for you. Now she wants things as a young woman would want. And he's like, I'm too old to give you all these things you want out of life. Yet he stays with her. Luckily, yeah. it doesn't. It becomes moot because other stuff happens. <laughs> right. So also, so his address has been out in the public for a while now, and he's getting reported on by like regular press. And so when Howard and Rezzy go back to his place, he gets attacked by a veteran in his lobby, and uh, he gets knocked cold. And when he wakes up, he's in the basement 
of the headquarters of the, I have the name here, Iron Guard of the White Sons of the American Constitution, which yeah. is Dentist Lionel Jones's organization. So now uh, that's not Bernard B. O'Hare. He hasn't arrived yet. Not yet. But yeah. just generally, veterans are like coming out of the woodwork to take a crack at this Nazi guy who's living in Greenwich Village and now everyone knows his address. Yeah. <laughs> and so Howard and Rezzy and George are at this headquarters along with all the other Nazis. And the plan is to fly them to Mexico City. That's what they're told. Right. And then, oh, well... And I'm sorry, it's just, it's so disturbing because he wakes up and he's like, where am I? And he finds out it's Nazi headquarters because that's where he's safe, which Rezzi. is fucked up, first of all. <laughs> and he asks Rezzy, like, why did you choose to bring me here? Because he kind of views the Nazis, obviously, at worst as fucking Nazis, but at best as, like, annoying pedants that he doesn't want to talk to. Right. And... She's like, it's the only place we're safe. And he's like, you mean from people who want to kill me? She's like, no, from the Jews that control everything. <laughs> like, they keep hitting home how these ideas he doesn't believe, everyone around him took him at face value. So now he can't. He has no real connection because everyone he talks to believes all the bullshit that he said earlier. Yeah. yeah, so he's stuck. And they're doing a ceremony at this headquarters where they're replaying one of his speeches. And while that's happening... Well, it's the eulogy for <coughs> Crap Tower. It's Crap Tower's funeral. Right, right. Yeah. And, uh, and someone gives him a note that says, your life's in danger. Run into the alley and into the building across the street and meet me. Howard does that, and he runs into Frank again. This is yep. his third meeting with Agent Frank. Third and last. Yeah. Who he calls his blue fairy godmother because... Frank's existence, obviously, in present tense, is the only thing, proof of Frank's existence is the only thing that would keep him from being executed for war crimes. Yeah. It's his one and only piece of evidence. Oh, yeah. and you're right. This is the, the spot where uh, uh, Frank chews him out for being a Nazi. Uh, but also Frank reveals that Rezzy is a, an agent of the Soviets. George Kraft is Iona Potapov, which we know is, is an right, agent of the Right, but this is Soviets. when Howard finds out. Yeah, and yeah. so Howard finds out all that. And that he finds out Rezzy and George's plan is to fly him to Mexico City and then just take him like across the tarmac to a plane to Moscow where Howard will be tried for his crimes and also held up as proof that the Americans were Nazis all along, like they were in league with Hitler. Yet again, he'll be used against his will. It's very player piano even. Yeah. He'll be used against his will as a propaganda icon. He'll be held in custody. His life will just be nothing other than being an icon and used for someone else's purposes. Yeah, and so it's important to say George and Rezzy had told him that they're going to go to Mexico City and like live a new life. And George, it's very moving, actually. Actually, and then equally upsetting, obviously. George is like, I can't believe this late in my life. I found a true friend, so I want to come with you and leave the country. Yeah. And he's like, that's true friendship indeed. I didn't think I deserved such a thing this late in life. And it's like beautiful until the very next chapter, it turns out George <laughs> Kraft is full of shit, right. which is amazing because Howard says in present tense, and I this like broke my heart, he says, although I want people to know at the same time, George was painting a portrait of me as just because he's a painter. And that portrait was so beautiful and insightful, I thought, into my character. How could it have been just an effort to fool a boob, like to trick a spy? Yeah. I feel like George must have really liked me. And it's heartbreaking to think that this guy at the end of his life in jail is just like, it's very sirensy. He's <laughs> trying, he's searching everything in his life for proof that he even had one friend, like yeah. a true friend. Yeah, yeah. That someone likes him or his life was worth enough to 
inspire true friendship, which it wasn't. So <laughs> basically Frank says, we'll take you anywhere again. You know, you can disappear again. And he goes, okay. And he leaves. And Frank says, the one thing you can't do is go back home because we're about to raid the Nazi compound and everyone yeah. will be arrested. So and he goes, he goes, just wander around, go wherever you want. He quickly realizes that he's too old for this shit. He honestly doesn't care what happens to him, which is another beautiful thing about pretending. Even if it's fake, even if it's lies, he wants to be with the woman who is currently pretending she loves him yeah. and the man who is currently pretending to be his friend. Like he wants a few more minutes of experiencing their friendship. Yeah, yeah. So he goes back knowing he's, it means he's going to get arrested. Yeah, and he goes back and he tells them that he knows everything. And he they calls say, him out in a great way. He says... I don't think we should go to Mexico City. I want to go somewhere interesting like Moscow. <laughs> and George Kraft like, is like, that's huh? a weird idea. Why Moscow? And he's like, I know a guy there, Ivan Potapov. And he's like, oh, oh yeah? <laughs> oh, him? Oh, <laughs> yeah. interesting. And then they both uh, pull guns on each other. So Yeah. yeah. And, and Rezzy and George both say that they had decided not to actually go through with that Soviet plan and just live in Mexico. Which we never know whether that's true or not. Right. Like Rezzy says, my plan was always that I was lying to Russia to get to you, and I really do love you, and I was never going to go through with it. George says, Rezzy told me that, and I was convinced, and I was going to break my plan and stay with you in Mexico City. He says, I don't know if I can believe you. The police come in. We, the reader, never find out what would have happened. And uh, in fact, even an American agent who comes in to arrest them tells George Kraft that he has been betrayed within his own hierarchy and that he was going to be summarily shot in the back of the head when he returned to Moscow. Wow. So it's like, yeah. you never... <laughs> it's, yeah, it's pre pretending within pretending within pretending and you never know if any of your friends or loved ones really love you. That's the takeaway. Right. <laughs> no, at least from this chapter. Right. And Rezzy is heartbroken by... Howard not really believing her, and she takes cyanide, dies, George is taken into custody, and then Howard is just sort of loose now, because they arrest all the Nazis, but they just kind of put him on the street, and there's a really poetic chapter where Howard realizes that he's just sort of out of momentum to do yeah. anything. He's and a Donnie Darko guy with no soul spear. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> he just yeah. literally stands in place for many hours. Yeah, he just sort of stands on the street, and a patrolman comes and asks him what's going on. And they just sort of talk about what anybody can do in this world. And then Howard goes back to his apartment, which is wrecked by vandals and so on. And yeah. he gets uh, sort of ambushed by Bernard B. O'Hare, who yes. uh, decided, like, now I can take him Ugh. down. And Bernard is heartbroken about his life because Bernard is like, I just became a dispatcher of soft serve trucks. Yeah. Like, I never became... Okay, well, just remind me when we get into Kurt Blurt and stuff, I think we got to dig into the Resi death monologue. Yeah. And I, the conversation with the cop about chemicals, I think, is also important. For sure. But I to, sort of want to... To get to the end of the synopsis section, yeah, for yeah. sure. And so Bernard is like, ah, finally, I can attack you. But he's also very drunk and has not been taking care of himself and is not ready to do it. And he tries to, like, attack Campbell in the apartment. And Campbell just easily, like, breaks... He takes a pair arm. of fireplace tongs yeah. and hits him, thinking that he must be armed. Like, he's scared for his life because he assumes he has a gun or knife. Right. So he thinks it's justified in self-defense to quickly hit him with a metal thing, and he breaks his arm. And what's <laughs> fucking sad is O'Hare, sloppy drunk, is like, I didn't have any weapons. And he's like, well, why'd you fucking come in here then and start threatening me? And he's like, I wanted it to be a fair fight, a fair fight. <laughs> so it's like this idea of this guy who so thinks of himself as like 
honor bound. Yeah. But yet the fact that he came drunk is like, what were you even expecting to get accomplished? And uh, Howard says, and, and this is the punchline we were talking about, and I think the moral of Bernard's story. Howard says, look at you. You came to kill evil with your bare hands, and now away you go with no more glory than a man sideswiped by a greyhound bus. And that's all any man at war with pure evil deserves. Yeah. So, like, if you're not sophisticated enough to see that this shit is complex and all the ins and outs, and you just think, I hate the enemy and I'll kill them, like, screw you. You're not part of the solution. <laughs> Even if you're on the nominally good side, you're too basic for this world. Right. That's what right. I gathered from it. And I love that scene. Yeah, same. Yeah. Then O'Hare flashes the hash down the stairwell, which is an amazing <laughs> yeah, way of saying yeah. he throws up. Yeah. I had never heard that. <laughs> he flashed the hash down the stairwell. <laughs> and Howard, especially because there's puke at the bottom of the stairs, that like that and everything else, he He's realizes. Brutal. Like, he says, clean it up. He makes him clean it up. Yeah. He's mean yeah. to Bernard. <laughs> but he but he's like he decides to turn himself in to be tried and he decides I should turn myself into Jewish people somehow. So he goes to Dr. Abraham Epstein's door and says, I'm surrendering myself. Bring me to people. And he's like, what are you even talking about? And then Epstein argues with his mom. Well, Epstein straight up refuses. He says, I'm not going to let you work your issues out through me. Right. I told you. To me, the Holocaust does not exist anymore. Shut up. Yeah, yeah. But his mom overhears, and he's like, excuse me a moment, and shuts the door. <laughs> and they, like, scream back and forth about the nature of justice. Right. <laughs> and finally, the mom comes out and is like, I think I can help you, Mr. Campbell. <laughs> <laughs> you son of a bitch. Yeah. And they find a couple other just, like, Jewish people in New York. Who want to do it. Yeah, who, who feel like it, it would be satisfying to turn him in, yeah. So they turn him over to the Israeli embassy, and then he's sent to Haifa in Israel to be held and put on trial. And then we're back to sort of the frame of it where they're making Howard write out his life. Yep. So they have He's that chatting evidence. with Eichmann, who's also writing his memoirs. Yeah. Chilling in Nazi jail. <laughs> and I, Eichmann keeps asking him for, like, tips about the publishing world, which is really funny to me. Right. <laughs> Just like, well, the whole like Eichmann... how do I break into books? Like, you're Adolf Eichmann. <laughs> And throughout this, he keeps talking about how his lawyer keeps saying, if you can just find one person to vouch for you as an American spy, you're free. You're fine. And the only we're... person who can do that is Frank, because as yeah. Frank told him in the third meeting, every other person is now dead who knew that he was a spy, including Franklin Roosevelt, who died recently. Right. So there's no one left other than Frank. And, and that's not his real name, and you don't know how to find him. <laughs> right. It's also not his real name. So then, and Howard's like, anyway, I don't know, I'll just check my mail, and opens a couple letters he gets, which are moving on their own. But then the last one is from Harold J. Sparrow, which is Frank Wertan's real name. That's and right. He says, Captain I'm... Jack Sparrow. That's the twist. <laughs> it's pirates. Uh, and Sparrow says, this is my serial number. I'm willing to break to direct orders and say under oath that you were a spy let's do this and howard's response is i am going to hang myself <laughs> i am done and he does and it's extra depressing because he says i'm gonna hang myself tonight this memoir just became a suicide note yep i've also heard that when a man hangs himself he hears beautiful music unfortunately i'm tone deaf goodbye cruel world <laughs> and then <laughs> and the last the the book. well the actually the very end is goodbye cruel world and then afita saying question mark which i love is almost like a sci-fi moving ending with the end question right. mark <laughs> but you know it's like until we meet again i don't know just a quick shout out to like who knows what will happen after yeah. my death but, after life yeah. or something yeah but yeah so it turns out you were reading his suicide note the whole time yeah and it's very interesting that you get his decision. So after contemplating everything, he clearly believes it's just that he be executed. He carries out the execution, not wanting to go through with a trial where he might be exonerated. Right. 
Or did he just have enough of living? Why do you, what do you think about the choice for him to actually do it at the end? I got the sense that it was one too many moments of, I have no reason to be around. Like, it's, it's very dark, but it's like... So like I guess a, I'm wondering if it's like a moral statement or if it's simply like, this guy's not ready for another go-round. He's just, fuck it. <laughs> I think it's the second one, yeah. Okay. Like, he just, he reaches, a, he reaches a point where he, I think he turned himself in because, partly for moral reasons, but partly because he didn't know what to do. And then when he's actually faced with the opportunity to, either opportunity or curse of, now you can be absolved of what you did he just doesn't have enough forward momentum to take it. I guess it's kind of both, because also he lacks the the moral judgment that maybe he wants, but yeah. he's just sort of spent. Like He's just like, all right. And hey. Frank's, yeah, Frank's relationship with him is so realistic in a way I love. Like, it's realistically complex, because like you yeah. said, the third time they meet, he's pretty disgusted by him because he's heard everything he said, and you can't, like we said, through sheer repetition... I know consciously you're not a Nazi, but how am I supposed to like look at you? Right. And then obviously after enough time apart, he was able to mull it over and be like, but the guy doesn't deserve to die. <laughs> so like, yeah. I don't know. Frank's, I really like Frank. I, I can see everything from his point of view very clearly. Yeah. And it's a, it's a very uh, John Le Carre kind of thing. I don't know if that's how his name is pronounced, but where like it's spycraft is very disappointing for everyone involved. And like, there's very little contact with each yes. other and it's very distant. It's just like, eh, I guess this is how it works. Yeah. 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 And the moves they make as spies are not clever. It's not like Mission Impossible. It's not like James Bond. Yeah. The moves they make as spies are very simple. And usually many years apart. Like a spy will only do two or three things. Interestingly enough, there's books dedicated to Mata Hari, yeah. the famous spy for the Germans. She was a Nazi spy <laughs> who was uh, like an exotic dancer who was right. also being a spy. Yeah. So yeah, it's all about pretending. I know we want to talk about the movie. We want to talk about the play we saw. We've kind of been talking throughout about whether he's a good or bad person. Do you want to do some Kurt Blurts on that? Let's do Kurt Blurts on that. I don't know if I have to decide ultimately. Let's do, if well, he's let's, a good or bad person, but decide, we could. Then. Yeah, let's um, do... This next segment is called The Meat. Chopping that meat. You chopping gotta chop a, chop a, chop a meat. I got a pound of brisket Ooh. here for uh, an Irma. Ooh. Irma, a pound of brisket. It's hot. It's hot. It's hot. <laughs> that was our best one so far. <laughs> um, I also want to say, and I'd like feedback on people from this, I don't mind necessarily if the synopsis... It seems okay if it's the bulk, because... It feels yeah. very comfortable to have insights as you're traveling through the book. Yeah, yeah, it makes it makes sense. Yeah, to or me. I'd be curious I, to know if people are like, you guys need to get the synopses down to ten minutes because I read the book and I just want to hear. Yeah, let meat. us know. Yeah, yeah. let us in know. the many ways to reach us. So yeah, um, meet me up. But meet so Captain, the big uh, question is: Is he ultimately good or bad? I think it's partly complicated by we don't know exactly how helpful his spying is. Like he's doing these speeches with coded information hidden within them, mm -hmm. but. We don't know if that, like, shortens the war by three years or, like, was just an idea that they thought would help and didn't really help that much. You know, it's a little bit, if you want to do, like, be very mathy about it, it's hard to tell exactly how much he helped the Allies. But he helped some, you know? Yeah. It's not hey. like Sirens where the first sentence is, the events of this book caused everything on Earth to be good. Right. No idea what he did. The only information you ever find out explicitly that he transmitted is that his own wife died and he is now a suicide risk. 
Yeah. Everything else he didn't get to know. And I don't actually know what it means, but I did notice something that has to be intentional, which is Frank tells him all the people who knew you were aspired dead, including all the women who knew what you were saying and fed the information to you, like the series of coughs. Yeah. That was fed to him by seven different women over the course of his career, all of whom were caught and executed, none of whom ever turned him in or like betrayed their orders. They were tortured and killed yeah. on his behalf. And Frank says, Think about that. Like, you didn't even know that, but you pleasured. It's the way he puts it, which could be kind of <laughs> on a what. He's like, you pleasured seven women over and over and over, and they died for that pleasure that you gave them. Yeah. Um, and I don't know if I'd liken it to, like, orgasmic pleasure to be a spy fighting for your country against the Nazis, but yeah. it's interesting only because... When he and Rezzy are out just like falling in love about town, they stop at a bar and they talk to a guy who claims that he can pleasure seven women a night, but if and only if the women are very, very different from one another. <laughs> and yeah, it seems like the randomest, and I still, I feel like I have clues, but I don't know what it means. So I'd love someone to theorize even on the Facebook or if you know, but I'm like, seven women being pleasured, seven women being pleasured. That means something. I don't know what the moral is, like why that's there, but that's a pattern, clearly. Yeah, and there do, there seems to be a running theme, a little bit of like just who women are in men's lives, especially if everything horrible is happening. Like, yeah. like what wives mean to people. How, like, especially because it seems like the Nazi Party was pretty male dominated, and also like wars can be kind of male dominated, at least especially in the uh -huh. past. You know, so there's really a, a running thing. That I don't think they ever spell out very much, but of like well, who women are in the it's world. It's also again. somewhat taken for granted by Vonnegut, I think, because I do think we have learned that he's an old-fashioned guy, by which I mean he does take gender stuff for granted that we no longer do. I would call him sexist here and there yeah, throughout and his there. oeuvre because he's a product of the 30s, 40s, and 50s instead of the 80s and 90s like us. Yeah, And, you know, to people in 100 years, we will be barbaric somehow. Well, yeah. But we'll wait and see how that pans out. There is also, yeah. since we're kind of doing it, this is a, a very brief Vana Watch. Oh, yeah, Vana Watch. But there's a, one part in the middle of the book where he makes a reference to Hottentots, which is like a now kind of racist thing to call the Khoi people of like Southwestern Africa. <gasps> I didn't uh, know that. And so it's, but it's like, it yeah. seems like it's a thing of its time. But that's just sort of buried in there, you know, and, and as yeah. you look back on it, didn't age great, probably. There's a couple of racial epithets that are really silly sounding, so you don't necessarily know. Like, there's yeah. a song called Gollywog's Cakewalk, and I was like, Gollywog, that's a fun word. And, like, and someone finally told me, like, no, it's not. It's like a really <laughs> archaic version of the N-word. You gotta not ever say that word. Wow, yeah. I've never heard that. That's crazy. <laughs> so, yeah, that was a swayma what. Here's another Vana what. <laughs> That might get us right back into the meat. There's a chapter called Chemicals. So the cop who talks to him when he's just standing still talks about something that was true at the time, which is the burgeoning field of psychiatry or like using chemicals to affect your mood and the brain, yeah. like antidepressants for the first time were a thing. And there's a chapter devoted to it that seems like a total random conversation until you realize that this book is a series of vignettes about pretending and morality. So even though it's not related to the plot, it's actually really compelling and interesting and bears totally on the theme yeah. to have a discussion about like, well, if you take antidepressants all the time and you're happy, is that pretending or is that real? And oh, it's just the idea yeah. of brain chemistry must have been even more compelling to them at that time than it is to us now. And I still find it compelling, the thought of like, 
are my feelings real in the way that like a soul or, you know, if everything's just brain chemicals, could you just feed chemicals into my brain to give me the experience of having seen a great movie and then we don't need to make movies anymore? Like brain chemicals are a crazy (laughs) thing to think about. And but, Kurt, yeah. Kurt sort of seems to go out of his way to put it in, too, because it, it's, a it's a long a, scene. It's at a part in the book where it's where Howard is on the street after he's been released from the, the Nazi base in America. And yeah. he's just out of forward momentum and stands there for so long that a patrolman approaches him and says, ah, move it along. And Vonnegut could just move on to the next thing. But instead, they had this long talk Chat, about brain yeah. chemicals. The cop says maybe when they find out more about brain chemicals, there won't have to be policemen or wars or crazy houses or divorce or drunks or juvenile delinquents. So the idea of like, what if that could fix everything? So great scene. They hit me in a new way in this reading and I think is really cool. There is a Vonnegut in it, though, which is the cop says, I mean... This is his proof of why it's all brain chemicals. <laughs> Look how women go half off their nut once a month. You know, <laughs> yep. certain chemicals get loose and the women can't help but act that way. Sometimes a chemical will get loose after a woman's had a baby. She'll kill the baby. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And you're like, all right. It's very okay, casual. Right. Yeah, you know. Uh, what about the brain chemicals that cause the concentration camps? You don't right. have to pile on the women immediately. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, chemicals. And, yeah, to finish out the meat, I guess, where do you come down on, is, is Howard on ultimately good in the book or bad in the book? Well, taking it through the lens of Vonnegut's We Are What We Pretend to Be, I guess that seems to say that if he pretended to be a Nazi, he was a Nazi. This is a really unsatisfying answer, but my true belief is that the quality of the human brain that wants to reduce things to simplicity is very useful in many day-to-day regards, but is very harmful with, like, topics that are genuinely sophisticated. So my real answer is, it is what it is, meaning whatever he did to help the Allies, he did. Whatever ideas he spread that became the foundation of Nazism, he also did that and is culpable for that. I believe Woody Allen probably has done some sexually inappropriate things and also (laughs) makes Uh, movies, some of which are really good. Yeah, There's no reducing it. There's no, it is what it is. It's complicated. Yeah. Would be my answer. And it's like a cop-out answer, but it's the truth. So fuck you. <laughs> I don't know what else to say. Well, and, and yeah, when I was mentioning before about like, you don't really know, like there's no point in the book where they're like, Howard's actions made D-Day work out. Or like Howard's actions helped them win It's an North unknown Africa. quantity. And like, like, it's never quantified because it's exactly what you're saying. Right. Like, it's just, he did what he did and you can decide what you want about it. And how can and, you quantify like, We know that narrative and propaganda and even like sitcoms having messages and stuff slowly affects the culture and everyone's thought process. But how can you quantify that? Like you don't know how much his Nazi broadcasts helped or didn't help the Nazis. Who knows? You'd have to quantify like how much hearing his radio show steeled the hearts of Nazi soldiers versus how many allied people he saved. It would be tough. You know, it's impossible. Right, right. He like Beatrice, he eventually thanks the powers that used him. Because he says yeah. the worst thing would be to not be used at all. Very right. big recurring very, theme. Yeah, very echoing. I feel like we could, uh, from here, do a few more Kurt Blurts and then get into like the other reading. Of things. I gots to blurt. I yeah. Got, yeah. Time for a Kurt Blurt. Blurt it out, blurt it up. Kurt, Kurt. Kurt, Kurt. He's a nut. Yeah, because we, in that added on intro which again i'm just so amazed it wasn't originally in the book he really hits we are what we pretend to be so we must be careful about what we pretend to be and then even within that intro he calls out there's also a second moral when you're dead you're dead and eh, here's the third moral make love when you can it's good for you 
and then we get into the yeah. book. Like it's just this is packed yeah. with them. This book. I think Kurt Blurt should become like a lightning round type thing. So should we just? Can we just go back and forth? Yeah, let's do it. All right. So then I got. If I had been born in Germany, I suppose I would have been a Nazi, bopping Jews and gypsies and Poles around, leaving boots sticking out of snowbanks, warming myself with my secretly virtuous insides. So it goes. An obvious point, but bears repeating. Your context affects you so much. If you were raised as a, in a terrorist cell, you would probably share terrorist values. <laughs> you know, it's interesting yeah. to think about. Yeah, yeah. and, and kind of gives people some credit, but also not for being involved in terrible exactly. things, I guess. Like, yeah. well, that's where you were. Well, the idea of personal responsibility is so freaking complicated. Blurt me! Yeah. <laughs> uh, this is It's toward the end of it, but I think my other favorite chunk of it that I remembered even before we read is the overall chunk about, he describes like mental gears and how they get worn down. And there's one part where he yep. says... Uh, Howard's explaining himself and saying that these other people are crazy, quote, but never have I willfully destroyed a tooth on a gear of my thinking machine. Never have I said to myself, this fact I can do without. Yeah. And he says the teeth of the gears are obvious truths. So for example, I think it comes up when he's talking about the police officers who do the raid ask Dr. Jones, you're a Nazi, right? Right. Yeah, I'm a Nazi. You realize, like, your right-hand man is an African-American and your left-hand man's a Catholic priest. Right. And he's like, what's so odd about that? We all believe roughly the same thing, that wrong people are in power and violence is needed to set it right. And yeah. Howard's like, see, that's what I'm talking about. <laughs> you, you can overlook the obvious truth that right. you hate black people, but you like this obvious contradiction by having this weird schizophrenia and this filed down gears. And he yeah. says, I never have filed down my gears. Does that make me better or worse? When I did all that racist stuff, I knew how bad it was. Right. Everything was uh, yeah. working in my head. And yeah. No young person on earth is so excellent in all respects as to need no uncritical love. That's just yeah. about Helga. That's great. There's a part where he's sneaking off to meet with Frank and he's doing like kind of maneuvery kind of stuff. And the quote is, man, I think, is an infantry animal. Mm -hmm. I really like that just like I feel like it speaks a lot to a lot of broader things about like how people got involved in these terrible causes is just like it was thrilling to us on like a primal level. Absolutely. I actually highlighted the very following sentence, I think, which is something like I can't find it. So I'm going to paraphrase. In that series of rushes, I came to love the infantry, anyone's infantry, meaning not yeah. he's not feeling political about it. He gets the appeal of being a soldier for a brief moment compared to Lawrence of Arabia great movie where there's a scene where the guy grapples with how surprised he is that he was forced into a battle. He killed some dudes and the thing he didn't expect was the rush of surviving and having killed people. Like he's like, I enjoyed killing those guys on the battlefield. Whoa, that's weird. (laughs) (laughs) And yeah, so just the idea that your circumstance, this guy who's never been a soldier, only been a spy has a brief moment, even near the end of his life of like, I could have been a soldier too. That's a good one. (laughs) I think I have like two more. Do you want to do two more? Sure. Yeah. yeah. When he's in New York, he's living on the interest on an inheritance he got from his parents. And of it, he says in passing, say what you like about me. I have never touched my principal. And it's Prince of P-A-L, meaning your money. But obviously it's just a great pun of like, he's never reached his principles. He doesn't know what they are. He's never touched (laughs) them. And that's that's actually uh, weirdly also in Sirens. I think Malachi's dad tells him never touch your principal. That's like one of the yeah. It's like one of the few tips it's a he gives. Play him in life. on word slash thought that yeah. Vonnegut likes. Yeah, yeah, which is great. There's also one part where Howard says, "Say what you will about the sweet miracle of unquestioning faith, I consider a capacity for it terrifying and absolutely vile." Excellent. Which is like I was going to really 
use that thing. one, which saves me from having to use that one. And then my last one is when he's talking to, so Eichmann's in the cell like next to him and they're talking back and forth and Howard's realizing Eichmann is crazy. And the way he puts it is he says that all concepts in life, quote, are all processed by Eichmann's mind indiscriminately like birdshot through a bugle. That's Love just it. a great, yeah. Amazing. He describes his plays as about as political as chocolate eclairs. Yeah, He describes yeah. a group of women as pretty as catfish wrapped in mattress ticking. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess that'll be my wrap-up because I can't remember, or I can't right now find in my notes the exact quote. But I did want to at least touch on, so I'll paraphrase, when Rezzy dies from yes. the cyanide. He says, you can't live for the my love anymore that can't be the thing that you're obsessed with because yeah. like i'm old we're about to be separated by the police and he, she says well here's two cyanide capsules let's like die romantically like in a play and he's like life isn't like that no he assumes she's bluffing yeah. well then she freaks out and i think this is so beautiful and true <laughs> she said then give me anything to live for it doesn't have to be you but you have to tell me, like, is it a chair? Is it that stovepipe? Is it that crack in the wall? Give me a reason or a cause. Yeah. Why am I existing anymore beyond this moment? And he goes, I'm sorry, I don't know. <laughs> and she goes, then I'll show you a woman who dies for love and kills herself. Yeah. And just the idea that that ineffable thing that we all need, that motivation or reason to get out of bed in the morning can become anything, right? And for him, it becomes yeah, like chess or anything mundane. Yeah. Yeah. So that was a really beautiful moment to me. Yeah. And I think it fits the ending too, because I think at the ending, he just, he decides not to pick a thing anymore. Like he just, well, at the very end of the book, when he hangs himself, that's he's just out of gas, man. He's, he's got nothing else to do. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> he has a way out and he says, I, I can't pick another thing. I'm out. Yeah. Such great blurts. This there book are many is full more. Oh yeah. We'll uh, never have enough time for blurts. Yeah. We also, we want to go on to a new segment. Uh, which was suggested by uh, Vaughn, a friend, fan, I don't know, some uh, friend of ours on Facebook named Gamyo Kevin Seperic. I'm sorry if I pronounced that wrong. Uh, this is a new segment called Kurt Vonnegrades. Vonnegrades. Please see me after class, Kurt. Okay. <laughs> That's his voice. That's young Kurt. So this is a thing that he pointed out in Palm Sunday, which is a collection, of, a very autobiographical collection of Kurt's writings and also new thoughts when he wrote it. He gives himself letter grades relative to himself yeah. for a lot of his works. And so we want to pull that letter grade whenever we can for some of his stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for all the episodes we've done, for Player Piano, Kurt gave himself a B. For Sirens of Titan, he gave himself an A. And for Mother Night, he also gave himself an A. I would go B I would, minus. Yeah, I would, I would go piano. lower on Player Piano, yes. Sirens, I would give A++. I mean, I'm yeah. biased. It's my favorite book, The and End. And, and the sense. scale includes A+. <laughs> like, there are other books. Oh, yeah, there's other books of himself. Here's what's weird. He seemed to like his own hits. I think he is swayed by public opinion. Yeah, like, by that. Cat's yeah. Cradle and Slaughterhouse-Five were the two big hits, so he was like, so those must be good because people like them. Yeah, they got A-pluses. But yeah. personally, for my money, Sirens of Titan is his magnum opus, name of the company within the book, Sirens of Titan. Yeah, <laughs> I'd, yeah I'd honestly go C for player piano, A-plus for Sirens, and maybe down to an A-minus for this one, but it's very good. I agree. It's very good. I think if you're the same as me, it's just that... I know so much about World War II. I have read a lot about World War II and seen a lot about World War II. So it lacks some kind of the originality of the crazy sci-fi stuff. Now, he lived through World War II, so it's obviously very (laughs) real and visceral, and he has every right to write about it. And the Holocaust is endlessly fascinating and terrible and something to dwell upon and learn from. That said, yeah, B+, A-. (laughs) 
Because I want to yeah. save the tens for the ones that really knocked my socks off. That's all. Sure, but sure. it's very, but very I, good. Definitely read it. It's really it. great. And yeah. it's, it's hecka short. It's also, yeah, really, <laughs> even for him, it zips by. Yeah, yeah, it really moves. And also, speaking of reading things, this is another segment called Related Reading. Flip, 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 flip. Oh, this page. Wow, look over there. <laughs> They're so they're so character based. Yeah. I really like it. Like there's I originally came in thinking they'd all be songs. Now they're all little scenes <laughs> right. of characters. It's yeah. a little dude or something, lady. But anyway, uh, related readings for this book, Mother Night. Do you want? Do you want to start? Yes, my recommended reading selections for Mother Night are as follows. I promised myself I would always recommend a Harlan Ellison short story because there's so many they bear on everything. Yeah. He's my favorite author, and everyone needs to read him. So this time it's Paladin of the Lost Hour. Great title. Which is about pretending and the importance of pretending and morality and does a really cool thing with morality where it tells a huge chunk of the story and it's important what race the people are, by which I mean it bears on the plot, but tells the story without describing them and then like halfway through says, one of these men was black and one was white. And the story is incredibly powerful emotionally and morally in different ways if you read it with the races in either place, which is a cool thing that you can only do in a story, you know? Cool. Like you couldn't do that in a movie. So I like that. Yeah. I'll recommend Ender's Game just because if you haven't read it, it was the first thing that, uh, again, Orson Scott Card, I don't like as a man. But Ender's Game was the first story I read that very powerfully told the story of do the ends justify the means? What matters, your intention or the effect on the world? Because you got Ender, whose intentions are super good, but they don't always have the best effect on the world when he acts. And Peter, who's a, his brother is a fucking sociopath, and because he's ruthlessly efficient, does a lot of good in the world. Even though he yeah. would just as soon murder everyone, he doesn't care. It just worked out that way. Who's yeah. a better person? <laughs> you know, I guess, it's very and, interesting. I guess it's more the next book or two, but also Valentine's role in the world. Like how how involved or not involved? Yes, is absolutely. Also, yeah. I also wanted to shout out two more. Shh. Not that's not at you. No, the name I of the story. Talk. The story hey. is called Shh. S H H dot 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 by David Brin in a book of his huh. stories called Otherness, and it is a story about mankind banding together using the power of pretending to repel an alien invasion. It's very interesting, and I don't want to give away the concept, but it's short and incredibly interesting. And last but not least, if you read a lot more than us and you have a bunch of extra time, a novel I'll suggest is Hard as a Lonely Hunter. Carson McCullers, have you read that? No. Well, it's a classic lit fic, and uh, (laughs) it's about like a dusty southern town shortly after the Civil War, and it's a beautiful book that shows the lives of people in the town very intimately, and you see their hearts and their minds a lot of the time. And basically what it boils down to is all the things that torment them that they yearn for in life so easily exist within another person down the street and could work out, but it doesn't oh. because we live in a world where you don't walk around going like, I just need to be loved right now. And people on the street won't go like, I have a high capacity for nurturing. I'll give you love. Yeah. You know, so it's the heart is a lonely hunter. That sounds great. Everyone has things they want and you can't get them even though they're right there in the other people that yeah. are around you. Very oh, beautiful. Wow. Yeah. I think this is my third in a row with a Ray Bradbury suggestion. Good. It's a short story called A Sound of Thunder. And it's about people traveling through time to hunt dinosaurs. And it functions on its own as just a time travel paradox kind of story or messing with time kind of story. But I think it also has another layer that has a lot to do with like 
people just not caring enough about their impact on the world or not caring enough about Mm -hmm. their actions and their needs being things that can have really far-reaching implications, Uh, not to spoil it. I'd also pick out Double Star, which is a novel by Robert Heinlein. Heinlein? I say Heinlein, but you hate all my pronunciations. (laughs) They're always different. Robert Heinlein. I think you are right, though. It's probably that, because there's a right way. Anyway, Double Star is... I read a lot of Heinlein's work when I was a kid more, and it's been a long time for most of it. Mm-hmm. And I think when I've picked it back up, I don't always love his characterization. I think it can be a little... Stilted? Yeah. yeah. And then also <laughs> some of his themes can be a little... Uh, He's real dry. He's old, old school sci-fi. Yeah, old, it's old real school. dry. Yeah. But the ideas are interesting. Yeah, yeah. And Double Star is the one that I do come back to if I do, because the characters are really fascinating. Mm-hmm. And it's basic, the basic premise is there's an actor in a solar system that's mostly been colonized by people, and there are also some extraterrestrial aliens, especially on Mars. And this actor gets recruited to take on the life of a politician who's been kidnapped. The politician... Like as a double? Yeah. A body double? the body double type person. But also he needs to fully embody the guy because the guy has been kidnapped and the people in his party want to keep things going. And it's a party for, like, enfranchising Martians, essentially, like Mm -hmm. letting them vote. And the actor, his stage name is Smythe, Lorenzo Smythe. He fully disagrees with the politician's viewpoint. Oh, that's very close to this. But he's beholden to be emblematic of that other viewpoint, right? And so he (laughs) represents him. And I won't spoil how it goes, but it has a lot of stuff about identity and belief and these similar themes. And and, and it's also just a good intro to Heinlein if you've never read him. And then the one other thing, it might seem sort of odd, but the movie The Imitation Game. If you haven't seen it, it has like okay. just some similar beats to this, like especially about a secret plot to defeat the Nazis that the people mm-hmm. involved can't even talk about, and a lot of people pretending to be other things. And I, th- I thought the a movie was pretending. pretty well done. Yeah, yeah. So if you're just looking for like a film instead of something to read, uh, there's that. And I and you know Benedict yeah. Cumberbatch is particularly good in it. Yeah, and yeah. I think we try hard to shout out stuff throughout. Also. I do highly recommend Lawrence of Arabia if you haven't seen it. Oh, it's fantastic. Yeah. Oh, it's really, really great. A Kurt Blurt, while I'm shouting shit out, there's a Kurt Blurt where he says, I was, after all, the son of an engineer. To explain I forget yeah. the details of how his mind works, I think it has to do with the teeth and the gears. But there is a band called Cowboy Mouth that I like. I'm not going to rave, but they have one album that I do love called Son of an Engineer. No, no. The album's called Word of Mouth, but the song Son of an Engineer, a reference to this line, is on it. Okay. And that song is dope, and that whole album I would endorse. Word of Mouth, Cowboy Mouth. All right. See, now people don't have to read at all. They can just watch stuff and listen to stuff. Yeah. It's great. And speaking of movies, because we were just talking about that, this next segment is called Movie Time. Action. Rolling. Movie Time. It's time for movies. Whose popcorn is this? Ah, it's mine. <laughs> All right. <laughs> good well, interaction. Good timing, because it's fucking movie time. <laughs> so this, on the Sirens episode, we talked about the movie we like to happen. This book, Mother Night, has a movie. And it was uh, it written happened. by Robert Whitey, who is involved in that documentary Rob, they're working yeah, on. Robert B. Whitey, Wide. I looked it up. It's Whitey. Yeah. Whitey. Uh, Robert and he's B. the Whitey. guy we mistakenly, or I, led us down that path, mistakenly said has anything to do with Quentin Tarantino, which I don't think he does. <laughs> He did, he's the Curb Your Enthusiasm guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so he wrote it. Keith Gordon directed it. And we both watched it separately. And mm-hmm. I felt like it was very faithful to the book. 
but also I came out of it thinking maybe this isn't totally effective as a movie because like the book just isn't a great source for a movie. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it doesn't quite have the beats that most movie storytelling would have. I thought it was so faithful that it became pointless. Yeah. Or the book literally only takes serious. I mean, if you just want to do it in one sitting, you could probably read it in five hours. Yeah. And, a mo- and the movie's two hours. And there's no dialogue in the movie that isn't in the book. And there are many things in the movie that I thought were better in my imagination than seeing brought to life. Yeah. So there were cool things about the movie, but in the end, it felt unnecessary, I guess. Yeah. Even though I'm the one saying, let's adapt Sirens and let's do it just exactly, adapt it exactly (laughs) faithfully. But for some reason, I just feel like seeing Salo and seeing the Cronus and Classic Infundibulum and stuff, there will be a lot of spectacle to that. This was watching Nick Nolte, who I didn't even think necessarily was the absolute best person to be Campbell, say the lines from the book. So I'd say read the book. I did want to say the things I loved about it. Alan Arkin is fucking incredible always. Yeah, he's great. Like Glengarry, Glenn Ross, another thing, if you haven't seen it, you absolutely have to. But in this as well, I thought Alan Arkin was the standout. He plays George Kraft. And he brought the tone of like, dark sardonic satire like did you notice that sometimes he would laugh or smirk at something or his delivery was like yeah right like the world is that way i felt like he was the only one pulling off a vonnegut tone like nolte was playing straight like i'm in an oscar bait movie about a nazi right whereas arkin acted like he was in a vonnegut world to me and he was the only one who was nailing that even john goodman was like He's great, but like, wasn't quite distinctive to me in this. And it was a bit he of a cameo. Kinda, it right. felt like John Goodman showed time. up, did his shit, got out of there. No right, big deal, right. yeah. Commissioner Burrell from The Wire yeah. plays Robert Wilson Sterling, the Black Fury of Harlem, and he does a great <laughs> job. And also, Laura Palmer from yeah. Twin Peaks is Re- an is adult Rezzy. Rezzy. And so then, I like to think that Rezzy took the cyanide capsule, and then she washes up dead, <laughs> wrapped in plastic <laughs> on the shore of Twin Peaks. Yeah, it's all. And she, I thought, nailed it. Yeah. She actually does a very convincing, like, Eastern European accent the whole time, and her yeah. emotions are very clear and strong. She did a great job. The actress, uh, her name's Cheryl Lee, and apparently she was born in Germany. Like, she's American, but... So that, like, oh, so they even found somebody real... with roots. Who, That's great. Yeah. Well, that was like most of the performances worked for me, and it, the script was very faithful to the book, and it wasn't like shot weirdly, really, or anything. The one I really didn't like. Speaking of Kurt cameos, there's a cameo by Kurt Vonnegut in the movie, and it's really distracting to me. I did not notice it. When is it? So it's in a really key scene in the book and in the movie where Howard's out on the street after the Nazi base gets raided and he just like can't think and he's just standing there. And so they have people on the streets of Manhattan just going past him in slow motion. And one of the slow motion shots is like what feels like an hour of Kurt Vonnegut just being one of the passerby. I... That's crazy, because obviously I know what he looks like, but he slipped by me. I was looking at a different part of the frame or something. (laughs) Yeah, that's surprising. It's like really low. Maybe I was typing a note. Yeah, and I missed it. Because part of why I think the movie struggles is so much of this book is very internal. Like, it's a lot of Howard being sad in a place, and like things in his brain are interesting, and so Mm -hmm. what do you do as a movie? But especially because like he's standing there in the street, and Nick Nolte's voiceover is telling you everything you're supposed to think and feel, and like... 
have yes. come to fruition. And then for me, in the middle of it, just Kurt Vonnegut is like, in the movie, like peeking at you. I'm you know? in the show now. Right. Yeah. <laughs> like it's why, like in Marvel movies, they never put the Stan Lee cameo in the key part. Like it's no, just a random. They you put know? it as a fun <laughs> joke in the midst of an action sequence. For yeah. a moment of levity, and yeah, it doesn't affect anything, for right. sure. And so this had actual Kurt Vonnegut wandering through the <laughs> emotional climax of the <laughs> of movie, movie yeah. which is really really weird to me. I will shout out, just because I'm such a promoter of movies, I love the medium. I think one of the great problems with movies these days, not to get off on a rant here, uh, <laughs> is that movies more need to do imagist things. Because that's what the medium's for. That's the thing that only movies can do, that other things can't do as well. Yeah. So I did want to give it credit for a few images things. You'll see what I mean when I start describing them. Maybe that's not the right word. But, for example, a couple things that were in the movie that weren't in the book, little things that I did find additive. Like uh, when he's talking to Dr. Epstein, talking about the Holocaust, and Dr. Epstein says, I, I just want to forget it. Those things should fade, he says, and they do fade. But at that same moment, you have a shot of his hand working on Nick Nolte's hand, and you see the, the number tattoo on his wrist from the Holocaust, which by definition is not going to fade, right? So yeah. just a nice, and that wasn't in the book, that was like the power of film to do a moment that's cool. Yeah, uh, that's And similarly, when he's whittling the chess set, this one's kind of obvious, but... When he's done, the piece he happens to be holding is a pawn, and they have a long, lingering shot where he stares at the pawn like, I am this pawn. Obvious, but I'm like, at least they're trying something, right? And then the one that I did, again, obvious, but I liked it, (laughs) because at least they were trying something, was during Crap Tower's eulogy when they're projecting the newsreel of him as the Nazi giving a Nazi address, he accidentally walks through the wrong curtain. And for a moment, his face as a Nazi is projected onto his current old man face. Yeah. And as obvious as that is, I do think it's the first thing you would brainstorm if you were thinking about it. I appreciated that they sat down and brainstormed as filmmakers, what are visual symbols of pretending identity overlaid on top of other identity? And it's like, yeah, and being used. And it's like a pawn and a projector. And yeah, they knocked out, they hit, they checked some boxes. <laughs> Yeah, they did. And it's, they, it's competently put together. And they and they clearly approached it with love for the source material. And Absolutely. With, uh, respect for it. And and it, it's sort of like, when I, I don't know how you feel about the Watchmen movie, but when I saw it, I kind of... Again, kinda, too faithful to the point where it made it not, why, was, why did I watch it instead of reading the Watchmen? Yeah. <laughs> when I, I almost came away from it, like, not thinking this is good or bad, I was just like, oh yeah, I, get, I just came away from it thinking, yeah, if you made a movie of this thing... That's what I guess you would get. That's exactly. It was such a weird, hollow feeling. Yeah. Because so I got the, people I had that ripped with on this it, too. and yeah. I was like, I don't get ripping on it. It's just it, like what it would be. It was literally just the frames of the comic animated with mild edits throughout. Yeah. But man, it was faithful. Yeah. Even there's, it, <laughs> yeah, there's a point of faithfulness where you start to be like, well, what are you doing then? Like that Psycho Vince Vaughn remake where it's a shot for shot remake. Yeah. It's like, just re-release Psycho. <laughs> What's going on? Right. Save everyone time and money. The yeah. only thing they added is a shot where he jerks off. Like, was that that <laughs> crucial to understanding Norman Bates? I guess Bates is in the name. He should masturbate at some point. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
so yeah, so the movie exists, and uh, <laughs> I guess that's my right. main take on it. McNulty's it's perfectly it. fine, and they should make more Vonnegut movies. But uh, yeah, this one, I feel like it was a hard piece of work to adapt, and they, and they did the best they could with it. But if you're not a reader, it got the story out there, and it does tell the story competently. So yes, yeah, yeah. It's a fine way to hear the story. <laughs> yeah, and it does it does hold together without having read it. Like I felt like one of at least one of the Hunger Games movies. I felt like you kind of need to have read this for this to mean anything. Like this is just kind of like too many scenes. Are omitted. It's yeah, it's just too many of the big moments without like explaining enough, and it's just expecting that viewers will have read the book, which is probably fair with the Hunger Games. But but with this, the the story's there and it's a thing. We also can go into a segment called Vonnegut News. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh oh yeah. Uh all right. All right. (laughs) Well you cut I didn't I for a split second, I didn't realize we were doing a segment, so I really just had to skim, <laughs> skim off the top of the old dome. And what was there? Uh, Orgasm sounds. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Finally, get news is a way to get into that. In addition to having seen a movie of Mother Night, we saw a play based on a lot of uh, Vonnegut short stories. And kind was, of. Kind of. But it, in our last episode, Sirens of Titan, we talked about this play being a thing that is running in L.A. By the time this comes out, the play will have just wrapped up. But it's called Vonnegut USA, and it ran at the Atwater Village Theater in that part of Los Angeles, Atwater Village. And we went into it thinking, okay, it's based on five Vonnegut short stories. But seeing the play, it was like very uh, 1950s and very Kurtz GE life and almost kind of a small town Americana kind of thing. It felt like the writer-director who said in their director's note that they've read all of Kurt's works chronologically and then sat down to write the play. They should have waited for our podcast, dude. But uh, (laughs) I got the feeling, yeah, they wanted to make a Vonnegut play about Vonnegut-ish characters in the Vonnegut universe. But for that to be cohesive as a series of short stories, you kind of obviously have to choose between the sci-fi stories and the non-sci-fi stories, like yeah. in your play, is there going to be teleportation and people with giant dicks, like in Breakfast of Champions, <laughs> or or someone who's unstuck in time, like Slaughterhouse-Five, or yeah. not? And they went the way I wouldn't have gone, because right. I'm a nerd. They said, let's go the mundane way. And it's basically adaptations of some of the stories that are just working people having their real lives in Ilium, with little, uh, almost Norman Rockwell-ish morals about... You know, yeah. modern life. Like there's a housewife who reads a feminist book and then breaks out of her shell and demands more from life. And her husband comes to respect that of her. And that's like a little vignette, which were fine. But to yeah, me, right. yeah, I but really it's... was expecting more of the like big offers, I guess. More of the big Vonnegut shit. Like someone yeah. traveling through time or something. <laughs> it, and it's also, it was Vonnegut material that I'm not that familiar with. So it was hard to tell if they adapted it well or not. Because I, I looked into exactly which stories they did. And it was one story from Bagambo Snuffbox, two from While Mortals Sleep, which is a collection of unpublished stuff. One from Look at the Birdie, which is like also kind of early unpublished or lightly published stuff. And then one that was in Collier's and I couldn't find collected anywhere. So it's really... So we'll get to most of them though on on this podcast. Yeah, but but it's also a set of stuff that you won't come away from it being like, ah, I saw Winston Niles Rumford on stage. Excellent. Like I finally did that. It's it's really, it's its own piece. And you also probably won't come away, because Vonnegut has a propensity usually 
to hit the big topics of life. Like Sirens was, what is the meaning of life? And Mother Night is like, what is the meaning of good and evil? Yeah. And it's funny, they almost went out of their way to pick ones with much more mundane things like, you should respect women's rights. (laughs) And then one of them was just like, you know, a meditation on one way, a love can blossom between two people, or some cute thing about how in this town, a bunch of men form this club called Lovers Anonymous, and I'll pine after this woman yeah. from the town. And it's just like, again, I want to say Norman Rockwell. Like, it's these weird little vignettes yeah. that I'm sure Vonnegut wrote. I actually haven't read any of them, the, these exact <laughs> stories. So yeah. it was super surreal to me, because I didn't see any characters I recognized. And I was like, is this really Vonnegut? Because all the topics are... Not to say that, like, the rights of women is low scale, but you know what I mean in terms of, like, not on the scope of what is the nature of the universe. When it was even the rights of women, but through a lens of we live in the 1950s and women are in a point of they're always married and stuck in that. It kind of felt like his story letting people know he's on board with the women's rights movement that was happening at that time. (laughs) Yeah, and, like, that we, not in all ways have moved past, but, like, in some ways have... Advanced beyond, I think, or at least aren't in yeah. the middle of Yeah, so the story you know? almost seems like quaint or trite because yeah. like the moral is the husband learns like, oh, it is wrong to just consign her only to be a housewife. She should be able to pursue like a dream in her life just as I am able to pursue that. Yeah. And I'm like, I'm glad Kurt thought that, but we know. <laughs> yeah, right. I know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it was uh, also, I think, maybe the first Vonnegut stage production I've ever seen. Ever, and, yeah, for uh, me. And it was, you know, put together uh, fine, and, and the acting was I solid. I thought too and, much narration. Yeah. yeah, and a lot too, of narration. Too many lines yeah. that were the actors talking direct to the audience with just saying paragraphs of, like, as if it were a recital of his yeah. story. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> And it's like... It could have been more dramatized. Yeah, and that and that's somewhat in keeping with Vonnegut's voice, but that also probably could have been done punchier, which is very his voice, and, you know, like, kept tight and quick things and things like that. I liked that it featured the guy from Tenacious D and the Pick of Destiny who's not Jack Black or Kyle Gass. Yeah, he was in the cast, which is thrilling. <laughs> and, and several of the actors, we should say, did a fine job. Oh, yeah. And I don't mean to, like, crap on it, but yeah, yeah. we're here to speak the truth, and I would say the script was all right. Yeah, it wasn't. It, I, yeah, I don't know if it was. But the cast was strong. Yeah, and uh, and good for them putting Vonnegut on a stage. I know, I'm like, yeah, yeah. I feel like we should like, only say good that. things. Yeah, yeah. I, you should still go see it. No, it's okay, because it's wrapped up by the time this it's comes out, It's wrapped up right? when this comes We're out, We're not yeah. cutting into their bottom line. They don't care. Yeah, this comes out <laughs> right after their last weekend, yeah. But we promoted it on the last one, so. There you go. Vonnegut there. USA. And then in terms of other Vonnegut news, I want to repeat one thing from our last round of Vonnegut news, that there's still a, an exhibition of Kurt's visual art at the National Veterans Art Museum in Park Forest, Illinois. So you can go see that in around Chicago. And I want to repeat my cheap joke and say there's a lot of buttholes probably <laughs> on display. There almost definitely are. Uh-huh. There's also... A a new thing where there's also a building in Indianapolis called the Athenaeum was designed by Kurt Vonnegut's grandfather Bernard and it's one of the key buildings in Indianapolis and it was designated a national historic landmark this month November 2016 yeah and it has a restaurant called the Rathskeller which is the oldest restaurant in Indianapolis that has a Vonnegut room with a bust of Kurt and things like that so <laughs> so we're preserving uh, some awesome. uh, like Indianapolis is really his Kurt and his family's like hometown and a place that they were yeah. a leading light of but now there's a more chance that you'll be able to go see Kurt stuff there you know what I super have always wanted is do you remember in Barnes and Noble they used to have those line drawn portraits of classic writers that were like horizontal lines of different thicknesses that would create the faces yeah vonnegut was in there 
And after all those shut down, I'm like, where can I buy that? Von- that I want that. Oh well, I want that picture of Vonnegut's Barnes face from the Barnes and Noble right? store. But they must have like uh, they cleared out all those posters from that campaign. Yeah, they years don't do that ago. anymore. Right. I think. Yeah, I want to. I want. I'm going to check eBay after this. <laughs> Actually, yeah, that would be great. It would yeah. be cool to have. Yeah. <laughs> so find us one of those, please, and uh, yeah. and, and steal that bust of Vonnegut and send that to us too. That'd be great. <laughs> Be very heavy, hard to mail. Mm. And uh, yeah, I think that's most everything for Mother Night, right? We think we yeah, hit I that book hard. And our Good next... night, Mother Night. <laughs> our next book is going to be Cat's Cradle. Mother Night came out in 1961. And this was also in the midst of him writing that and a lot of his other novels. His very first novel idea that he pushed is what became Cat's Cradle. It came out in 1963. And he's said in his letters that after he did that, it felt like he had completed sort of an era of his writing by putting Cat's Cradle out after all those other things. And also, we should say that in that time that he was putting out Mother Night and Cat's Cradle, he put out a short story collection called Canary in a Cat House. We're going to cover that later on because it was essentially re-released with an extra story as Welcome to the Monkey House down the line in the later 60s. But we we do intend to get to... I want to be clear. Like, we're not just cherry-picking novels. We're going to do short stories. We're going to do essay collections. Yeah. Because personally, I've never read some of the essays, but I bet they're baller. Like, I'm excited. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And we're, and we're also going to do plays. And one, mm-hmm. thing, one thing about Mother Night is that it is sort of a document of the time that Kurt Vonnegut was really, really interested in writing plays and writing for the stage. He, in 1960, wrote a play called Penelope that went up locally in Massachusetts and he became like the president of a theater group in uh, West Barnstable in Massachusetts. And, and uh, in between working on Mother Night and some other things in the early 60s was doing a lot of playwriting. That play Penelope later became Happy Birthday Wanda June. Ah, and we'll cover so we'll it read that then. then along with a couple other of his early plays also down the line. But we're working from like those later publication dates instead of uh, cool. the early ones. But so our next episode is going to be Cat's Cradle. And please connect with us on the internet yeah, to talk please, about that please. and any of these other books. Again, that's facebook.com slash Kurt Vonneguys, at Kurt Vonneguys on Twitter, at Kurt Vonneguys on Instagram. And uh, if this isn't nice, I don't know what is. Exactly. Exactly.